Today's episode of What Happened When is brought to you by 1FMC.com. What exactly is happening over at 1FMC.com? Well, wrestling fans just like you are saving 60, 70, 80, even $100,000 worth of unnecessary interest. And I'm talking to you if you're still in a 30-year loan. What are you waiting for? First Family Mortgage can help you pay your house off faster and with cheaper monthly payments. If you've got PMI, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much. And don't get me started on a home equity line of credit. Interest rates are on the rise. Don't get stuck overpaying. What one thing would you like to change about your house? First Family can make that dream a reality with a quick 10-minute phone call. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket, and you can even skip your next two house payments at 888-425-0105 or get a quick quote right now for free at 1FMC.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. This is the MLW Radio Network. Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When? Monday, right here on the MLW Radio Network and our Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Tony Schiavone. Tony, what's going on, man? I'm fine, Conrad. What's going on with you? Uh, Master of Ceremonies, kind of like Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circuits. Well, it no is. No more elephants, just you and me. Uh, roll tight on that. <laughs> uh, we're doing something a little different today. Tony and I have never recorded at the same place at the same time, and uh, we made it happen today, and today we're at the Conradison, so I guess technically I'm the master of ceremonies today. Yes, you are. You always are, as a matter of fact. I'm just the, uh, I'm just the clown in, <laughs> in the background. Wait till the gimp comes out. Like, I'm really looking forward to you meeting the gimp. <laughs> it's a Pulp Fiction reference. You I know what it is. <laughs> And now I'm scared to be here. <laughs> it's like uh, I was told there's a room you're not allowed to go in at Castle Cornet. Yeah. Are you in the loop on this? No, I'm not. I was just told there's one room that's always locked and nobody's allowed. Really? Now, Bruce Pritchard's full of shit. We I both know. agree. Exactly. But that's just what he says. Yeah. That could just be rumor. No. That's- Tweet Corny and uh, tag Tony Schiavone and yeah. ask questions. Please do. Yeah. Uh, we know Pritchard is full of shit. I knew that. <laughs> Back when I worked for him. In 89. 89, man. <laughs> I, remember, I remember them walking me in and saying, uh, this is Kevin Dunn. Hi, Kevin. How you doing? You're going to be working with this guy, Bruce Pritchard. I'm like, hey, I remember Bruce from uh, the Crockett Cup yeah. when we had it back in uh, the, the, the uh, Superdome. And then I sat down with Bruce. And, you know, it doesn't take long to find out that someone's full of shit. Sure. You just have to talk to him like five minutes. Right. And I walked out saying, boy, he's really full of shit. Not a lot has changed <laughs> in those 28 years since. 28 years. Isn't that hard to believe? Yeah, it is. You're an old fucker. Yes, I am. I'm an old fat fuck, and I enjoy myself. Well, I'm a young fat fuck. Yes, you so are. So we got that going. <laughs> You're just a fuck. Well, I'm good with it. I'm good with it. Uh, any fucking follow-up to Halloween Havoc 1990? Uh, no. No follow-up at all, except uh, I went back and watched The Phantom of the Opera once again, and uh, certainly did, did enjoy that. Did you really? Yes, I did. That's amazing. And I watched also watched My Fair Lady in Oklahoma. And I watched one other. I think Carousel, I watched that as well. Just love the musicals. I got a lot of um, feedback from me saying that I saw Hamilton. Have you seen Hamilton yet? I, I have not seen Hamilton. 
it's outstanding. Is it really? Yeah. You go to New York and see it, right? Yes, you do. Yeah. And uh, if we can convince you to come do an appearance SummerSlam weekend, uh-huh. you should go to Hamilton. Take okay. Lois. Uh, not going that far. Okay. But I'll maybe come to SummerSlam weekend and maybe go see Hamilton. I'll go again. Okay. All Sounds right. good. I like it. Um, let's, uh, let's switch gears. You mentioned Oklahoma and unfortunately this week, it brings up some bad news that we should probably address your great friend, Mr. Jim Ross lost his love of his life. Jan Ross passed away on Wednesday. And I know, uh, at different points in your life, you've been very, very tight with Jim. Uh, how well did you know Jan and, and what can you say about her? Well, I knew Jan very well. Uh, when Jim first met her, they were living here in Atlanta and, um, I used to go over to Jim's house and, and hang out with Jim, and we would format some shows. And Jan was there, and I used to always say, boy, she is so pretty and so nice. What is she doing with a shithead like you? <laughs> and he would agree with me. Uh, and then I saw Jan at the NWA Fan Fest in Charlotte in August, and we talked for a little bit. She was a sweet lady, uh, a great person. And I'm sure because of, of Jim and his life and the problems that he went through, like with with Bell's palsy, right, uh, and being uh, run out of WCW uh, years ago, uh, that she was a very strong influence on his life. Uh, I heard about it. I called him. He talked. Uh, this is before she passed away. I heard about the wreck, and he told me about what had happened. And I said, "Well, I'm not going to bother you. Just uh, let me know." And then I sent him a text when I found out, and I said, "Don't even answer this." But we're praying for you, and we hope you're doing well. And I said, you know, all the fans love you. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was uh, it was just, I haven't heard back from him. don't want to hear back from him, you know, because with family and everything and all this. He's got a lot going on. Yeah, you don't need to be texting everybody. So sending that text, and uh, it was it's heartbreaking. Uh, my wife, uh, who never met Jan, just boo-hooed and cried uh, because that's the way Lois is. And, um uh, she was feeling for Jim because she knew Jim very well as well. It's got to be tough. It really is. Uh, and they had been uh, together for quite a while. So. And you're going to be together with Jim Ross this coming weekend. He's still doing all of his uh, shows and commitments in Orlando WrestleMania weekend. So if you'd plan to go to WrestleCon and check him and Rick and Sting out, uh, you can still do that on Thursday. Uh, but over the weekend, he's got a Saturday and a Sunday show. I know Bruce is going to be helping with one of those, and you're going to be there with JR as well, right? Right. I'll be there with the first one, uh, and uh, this will be good for Jim. This, this will be good to get back into it and, and try to ease his mind, get back in the flow. and uh, So I think it'll be great. It'll be great to see him again. Uh, he and I, uh, we have some stories of being together, I can tell you that. And you're going to get to hear those stories, and if you'd like to uh, check it out, tickets are still available right now at ticketfly.com in the search bar at the very top just type in jim ross and you'll see it Uh, he's got a show there on saturday april 1st and that's when you can catch tony and jim on stage ticketfly.com just type in jim ross and you'll see it and you're also going to be at wrestlecon this weekend tell everybody when they can come see you if they happen to be in orlando this weekend Uh, i'll be there for the entire wrestlecon uh to be honest with you, I don't know what time I'm supposed to be there yet, uh, but I'm supposed to be there, uh, except for I'll, I'll step out and do JR show on Saturday, but I'll be there on Friday and Saturday, uh, and I'll be part of that, and uh, I look forward to that. We, I was kind of looking down the other day, the 
the list of, of names and of uh, people who are going to be in WrestleCon, and I'm so excited about it for two reasons. Uh, number one, uh, I get to meet uh, the fans, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, number two, I get to see some of my friends that I haven't seen in many, many, many years. I looked down the list, and I saw Nikita was there, the Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez, Al Perez is there. <clears throat> Deborah McMichael is there. Still on top of you at WrestleCon.com. Uh-huh. I like that they show, they've added new guests, but they've made sure when they had to rearrange them yeah. that she's still positioned right above you, which is the way you like it. Right. So I look forward to being there, and I will be in the... You're going to be there with RF video, my friend, and uh, that's at the Hyatt Regency in Orlando, uh, and it's going to be Friday, March 31st from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m., and then on Saturday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, of course, on Saturday, uh, Tony is going to have to scoot a little early to make Jim Ross's show, but you can still catch him Friday and Saturday down at WrestleCon. So grab your tickets now. Come see Tony. He'd love to say hey and sign your shit and call you a slap dick and then get your Twitter handle and promptly block the fuck out of you. Yeah. Lois said, she said, do you want me to go with you? I said, hell no. <laughs> Deborah McMichael's coming, <laughs> exactly. baby. Exactly. <laughs> and I said, take a look at all these beautiful uh, uh, divas from wrestling, man. I'm going to, I'm going to settle up to them. You stay where you are. How many panties are you going to chew this coming I, weekend? Uh, I'm going to chew none. I can't chew panties. Well, you're letting our, our buddy, I mean, is, have you heard from anybody in uh, Klondike Bill's family yet? I'm not. It's coming. <laughs> you know that, right? I hope not. I hope not. It, it, let me say this. Klondike Bill is one of the great men in wrestling. One of the, everybody who knew Klondike Bill loved him. And the stories are part of his past. I don't want to offend anybody. And that's the way he was. That's the way he was. Have you met Karen Jarrett? I've not met Karen Jarrett. Is she, uh. Is she uh, Jeff Jarrett's wife? She is. She used to be Kurt Angle's wife. Really? Yeah. You missed a lot when you've been gone. Wow. They just. They just... How about Mick Foley's daughter, Noel? Have you met her? I have not met her. Is she going to be there? She's going to be there. Okay. So uh, so SoCal Val. Yeah. Miss Jackie. I know oh, you remember her. I remember Jackie. Yes, absolutely. I remember her. Uh, I remember this. I remember a girl uh, back in the Crockett days. Good looking. Her name was Dark Journey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, whatever happened to her? Um, she was, like, smoking hot in a very exotic way. I have a fun story. I'll have to tell you when we're not recording. <laughs> really? Um, wow. <laughs> wow. If we can't put it on this podcast, it's holy something. shit. It's some shit, boy. Oh, man, I Tor- can't wait. Tori Wilson's going to be there. Oh, I love Tori. She's a nice girl. Have you seen Tori Wilson in 2017? No. Roll Tide. Really? Yes, sir. Very good. Um, Tremendous. Uh, one man gang's going to be there. He's going to be in the booth with me, by the way. I haven't seen one man gang in quite a while. I feel like I could be one man gang's long lost son. Yeah. You could be Akeem. Yeah. The Alabama dream. (laughs) Right. I'm just saying, (laughs) check it out. WrestleCon. It's the single biggest event of the year for all things wrestling convention. It's this weekend in Orlando. Uh, Bruce will be there. Tony will be there. Everybody you enjoy listening to on the podcast will be there. Uh, and as we're taping today, Tony, I realized as I was kind of doing some show prep today is March 26th. 
That's the uh, day we went down, right? It's the very last Nitro. Wow. How about that? 16 years ago today, and now here we are taping a podcast. What's the fucking irony in that, man? <laughs> I have, I, I don't know. Uh, after March 26th, I remember thinking, that's it. I'm done. Yeah. I did some X, uh, XWF stuff, if you'll recall, with uh, Jerry Lawler after that, but I remember saying, that's it. I'm done. One shot in TNA, too, right? Yeah, one shot in TNA. And now talking to me and my yeah. dumbass every week yeah i know dumbass and but you know uh you're a lovable dumbass i appreciate that you're you're more than welcome well let's get to it what everybody wanted to hear this week uh and this is the most wcw podcast of all time here peek behind the curtain it, it finished in a draw uh and this is not one of those royal rumble situations but when you actually looked at the poll it showed that we had two topics at 29 percent halloween havoc 1991 and the Great American Bash 1991. Now, one of them had a check mark by it, uh, and was and was highlighted a little darker. But if you just at a glance, you would think it was a draw. So we got lots of tweets about questions for Halloween Havoc 1991. It turns out, though, Great American Bash 1991 actually won, and only one of us knew that, Tony. <laughs> This is the most WCW podcast ever. I did research on the Great American Bash 1991, and when Tony came over today, he started talking to me about the Van Hammer match, and I looked at him like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's telling me about Doug Summers and that the Z-Man had a squash match, and none of this shit happened on the Great American Bash 1991, but we're going to freestyle it and have fun anyway. It would happen later. On Halloween Havoc, 1991. <laughs> I, I told Conrad, I said, that Van Hammer match may have been the worst match ever on a pay-per-view. And you said, I don't remember that. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong one. <laughs> so when we talk about Halloween Havoc in 91, I'm going to be all up to date on that one. That's great. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. We'll put it back on a poll soon. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, we're, we're talking great American bash 1991, which of course took place in July of 91. Uh, in June, it was reported in the observer a few days prior to the clash of the champions 15, that the higher ups at world championship wrestling had decided to greatly reduce the television exposure of the American dream, dusty roads. Meltzer writes, I don't have any details as to why the company made this decision, but Rhodes was taken off as a color commentator on Wednesday's clash and replaced by Tony Schiavone, as many of you have already seen. In addition, there are reports that Rhodes bull drop in segment are being dropped as done by orders above dusty Rhodes. So he's kind of teasing here that the reason this is happening is, um, they think Rhodes has been putting himself on TV too much and they're going to start to minimize the TV time. Do you remember any of that happening or being told, hey, we're taking him off and putting you on? What kind of happened behind the scenes to lead to that? I think what happened behind the scenes, well, what happened behind the scenes, as I remember it, Conrad, was that they thought that Dusty should pay more attention to being a booker right. than a TV star. And they is? Well, Jim Hurd. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure anybody above Jim Hurd even gave a shit. Okay. Uh, thought that Dusty should pay more attention about being a booker. Do you think that that is that comes from Jim Hurd's personal wrestling experience, or does he have wrestlers in his ear telling him this guy's putting himself over? There's no question he had people in his ear telling him that. Jim Hurd was the type of guy that you could really manipulate. Who who would you guess would have been in his ear? Oh, 
Not Ric Flair, which normally I would say Rick, but it's not like Hurd was a big Flair guy. Yeah. Especially not in this time. Um, I any, any number. Okay. Any number. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Jim Ross had his ear. Yeah. Uh, but Jim and Dusty got along. I, I don't think, I'm not so sure that Jim was upset about anything that Dusty was doing. Uh, I know sometimes Dusty would bring Jim and I in to help him write WCW Saturday night. And then he wouldn't bring us in for like another month. That's then, weird. Yeah. Then he would bring us back in and then we'd have a good session. He would come up with these ideas and Jim and I would try to refine that a little bit. And we always walked away. Dusty saying, thanks. That's helped out a, lot, a great deal. Huh. Uh, but Dusty liked to do things by himself. Right. Uh, and I think there was the thought that, well, he's not going to work with the committee. So let's take everything else off the table and just let him focus on booking. He always told me, Dusty said, that this is my job. I'm going to, I'm going to either uh, rise or fall with what happens here. I'm not going to have anybody go down with me. That was always his excuse to me about booking things on his own. So I think, uh, again, who was in Jim Hurd's ear? Not sure. But he listened to everybody. Okay. Even listened to me one time. How about that? What did you pitch him? Well, one, one time Hurd came to me and said, uh, Zabisco and I were going to Chicago and doing opens and closes, ins and outs for the WCW Pro Chicago show uh, that aired on WGN. And Hurd brought me in, and he, and he said, uh, we forgot to get Zabisco's ticket in time, and now we got to pay this exorbitant fee to fly Zabisco with you to to Chicago. It was always me, Zabisco, Neil Pruitt, and a guy named Bill Tinsley. Bill was our cameraman. Uh, Pruitt was our producer, and it was me and Larry as the talent. And he said, so he ain't going with you. And I said, then we shouldn't go. He said, what do you mean? I said, then, I said if it's just going to be me by myself, then I should just stand up on a green screen and do the leads there. He said, if we don't have Zabisco, we shouldn't go. And he paused. He said, okay, he can go. But don't let this happen again. And I walked out of his office and I said, shit, that was easy. So wow. uh, so that's, you know, that's how he, uh, and, you know, I, I take that as, as him really, you know, respecting what I say. I, maybe well, I, also, too, yeah. you know, not going would have been a cost savings. So Yeah, right, right. But we did. I thought I thought Zabisco and I back in the day. We went to Ed DeBevick's restaurant. We did we did a lot of things in Chicago. Uh, I thought it was pretty. Some of the stuff we were doing was pretty cool. Yeah, and I think he liked it too. So yeah. Uh, Meltzer continues. What that means as far as Rhodes' future as a booker is certainly going to be the subject of much speculation. Uh, certainly, nobody can be happy with the results of where the promotion currently is. And Rhodes does have to shoulder some of the responsibility for this because the company has actually fallen to even greater depth since his arrival. But the problems of the company go so much deeper than the booker. In addition, it isn't like there's a miracle worker ready to come in and turn the company around. I thought this is pretty fair from Dave here because, you know, if you are trying to move away from Dusty, who could you bring in? Yeah, who, I mean, no one. There's no one to bring in unless you want to go back and try to get Ole. Right. Uh, Kevin Sullivan was around and Kevin was a smart guy and knew the business, but I, but I agree. I, you know, it's like, we need a new booker. Well, it's not, and I've said this before, it's not like you go to the McDonald's drive-thru and say, can I have a booker please? And they say, yeah, we got 10, 10 of them in here. We'll put them in a bag for you. You just, you couldn't do that. 
Dusty has always kind of credited Eddie Graham with his booking philosophy. Right. Um, what was Mike Graham doing at this time? I know he was still working a little bit, but was, would he have been a resource at that time? He was an agent. Okay. Yeah, he was one of the, one of the top. Agents. I mean, creatively though, you don't think he had the chops to take over? Mike? Yeah. Don't think he wanted to. Matter of fact, I know he didn't want to. Okay. Mike was a very good agent. He was uh, he was no nonsense, no bullshit with the guys, and uh, I thought he could really put together a match. Yeah. Really explain. So he was very, very uh, helpful as an agent. And then, of course, later on, you know, he did some. He did help out us with a little bit with the booking committee. I, I like Mike a lot. Now, of course, Cornette's gone by that point. But let's talk about Kevin Sullivan. Uh, Sullivan had at times had different things going on in his life where maybe he wouldn't have been the right person to pick. But he is considered to be one of the greatest booking minds in wrestling. No and, and and Bischoff specifically says. Nobody could book heat like Kevin Sullivan. He exactly. knew how to book heat. Yeah. What would keep him from being more involved in the booking in 1991? Well, uh, I would, I would think it was the fact that he just probably didn't want to be the booker at that time. Uh, and liked being on the outside or like being, you know, an advisor. Sure. Uh, and on camera and all and on that. camera. Being the booker back then had a tremendous amount of pressure on it because we had a brand new company. Things really compared to the WWE were not going well. I knew firsthand after working for the WWE for one year and then coming back to WCW, it was night and day. We just were not the company they were. Right. We absolutely were not. We didn't have the resources. Uh, we didn't have the mindset. We weren't as professional as them. And... So I'm not so sure anybody wanted the book at that time. Maybe I'm guessing wrong. Maybe Kevin did. I know he has his own podcast, and maybe he's talked about it. So. Do you remember the moment when you realized this isn't the same Dusty that popped Jim Crockett in 85, 86? Yeah. First day he took the book. Really? It what? was obvious right away. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the same company. It, wasn't, well, it didn't have the same feeling to it. So you weren't, when they said Dusty's the guy, you didn't take that as... Oh, thank God. Because you knew what he'd done before. You thought, well, that's not going to make much of a difference in this infrastructure. Exactly. Okay. I, I remember finding out when Dusty was the booker, we were going to L.A. to do uh, Family Feud in January of that year. And Jim Hurd said, here, before you go, I want you to take this. This is the format for our, our next show, WCW Saturday Night. And he handed me these fact sheets. And I immediately recognized the handwriting. He didn't tell me that Dusty was going to be our new booker. On the sheets, I knew Dusty's handwriting. I went, okay. And I looked at it, and I went, holy shit, Dusty's back. And uh, Kevin was on that uh, trip with me to L.A. And, uh, you know, he was, he was always close with Dusty. And we talked about it a little bit. I said, what do you think about Dusty coming back? He said, well... You know, Dusty knows what he's doing. I don't think there's any question, but can he get anything done around here? And that was always our question. I think I've said this before, and I'm serious about this. And you can ask, and, and I told Heenan this years later. When, when I, this, this looks really bad on me, but I don't give a shit. When I left the WWE and came back to WCW, it was the biggest mistake of my life, and I knew it. 
I, I went into my living room uh, when the kids were upstairs in bed and laid on the couch and cried. Thinking, I've made the biggest mistake in my life. Yeah. And Heenan said, Heenan would laugh. He said, you just cried? I said, yeah. I said, it was terrible. It was a terrible decision by me. I was working in a, in a professional atmosphere with a great staff, maybe overstaffed at times. Uh, and here I came back to uh, a company that didn't know what the fuck it was doing. Uh, and it was operating on a wing and a prayer, so to speak. So I felt very bad about it. So when Dusty came in, I'm thinking, yeah, Dusty's sharp, but he ain't going to turn this shit around. And, I, and I've told the story to Lois. I said, there's not a day that goes by here at WCW, and this is in the early 90s, where I think that they're going to just lock the doors here and say, that's it, we're done. And eventually they did do that. But when I first came back, I thought it would happen any time because we were so fucking lost. Can I bring anybody down any more than that? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't think that I didn't think that Dusty's booking would matter. I thought it was unsalvageable, and that is because of the leadership at the top. Now, yeah, you could say point to Jim Hurd, but Jim Hurd also uh, was in a position where. All right, compare Jim Hurd to Vince McMahon. Oh, no comparison. Okay, but compare Jim Hurd's not only background and knowledge of the business, compare Jim Hurd's decision-making. His hands were tied. Right. Vince could make any decision he would want to make because it was his company. And I think that's one of the things that uh, that led to our demise eventually. So what else you got for me, son bitch? Well, uh, let's talk about the Clash of the Champions 15. We mentioned it a minute ago. Uh, This is um, not a good sign. Ric Flair defends his world title in a two out of three falls match with Bobby Eaton. It goes about 14 minutes. And Meltzer makes note that it's too short for a match like this. And he says, the crowd live didn't get into the match, at least like a main event on a major spectacle, despite the quality of the match itself. It appeared that nobody believed that Eaton had a chance to win the title because even after winning the first fall, his near falls with Flair, barely kicking out, shockingly got little crowd response. Like in the Steiners match, it appeared exciting at home, but it didn't look exciting live. But it's more than that. To have such little interest, they've completely killed any aura of the title meaning anything, which is a major part of their problem in drawing fans to house shows since the title match is always the main event on the big shows. The title has been destroyed by title matches that end with the champion never winning, but also never losing. It also says something about Flair, whose routine of constantly putting over his opponent, as unselfish as it sounds to some, seems to have caught up with him because he's no longer got the magic when he enters the ring. Uh, Tony, I'm the world's biggest Ric Flair fan, but I have to agree with Dave here. It feels like at the time he did fall into a rhythm with the booking of he's going to make the guy look great, but he's never really going to lose and he's not going to win in dominant fashion. So it does start to diminish what you think is possible. How'd you feel about that at the time creatively? Well, is that Ric Flair's fault or is that the fact that we had nobody to pair him with to, to make him the champion that he, that he should be? Well, I don't think anybody's saying it's Ric Flair's fault. I think it's just a, a situation with the belt where because of the booking, it's been devalued. Well, that that's valid, but I think it's a situation to where I don't know who else Flair can go up against. Bobby Eaton, we all know, tremendous worker. Absolutely. But is Bobby Eaton a main event star? 
Probably not. Probably not. Unless he is. Not as a single. Not as a single. Unless he is with the Midnight Express. So, uh, Bobby Eaton was put in that match because I'm thinking, well, who else do we have to put in the match with him that they haven't seen before? Right. I think it's a, I think it's a, a case to where maybe it's devalued because we're showing too many world title matches. And I know what you're saying. World title match should be the top on your pay-per-views and then the top of your Clash of Champions. Maybe we just had too many of them. See, I really believe that. I know I've said this before. I believe that showing too much shit hurts your product. Mm-hmm. And we were doing that. We were showing too much shit. Even in 91. Even in 91 we were. Really, beginning in 91 we were. Mm. Showing too much shit. Meltzer gave the match three and a half stars and it drew a 3.9 rating and a 6.7 share, which means it was viewed by 2.2 million homes. Uh, the main event itself got a 4.3 rating, which was the lowest main event rating in clash history. Do you think that is reflective more on the company or the men in it? The men in it are the company. So, but you, you, would you blame Rick and Bobby for that? Or do you no, blame the promotion? I blame the promotion. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, Meltzer would report in the same issue. This all leads very quickly to the Baltimore bash on seven fourteen, which is just a few weeks away. The lineup, at least the version I've heard will be flair versus Luger in a cage for the WCW title sting versus Koloff in a chain match, the Steiners and Missy Hyatt against Paul Lee, Wyndham and Anderson in a cage. Austin and Taylor versus P and News and Eaton in a scaffold match. One Man Gang versus Elegante. Black Blood versus Big Josh and a Lumberjack. Black Blood. Yellow Dog versus Johnny B. Bad. Freebirds versus Rhodes and Young Pistols in an elimination tag match. Zinc and the Diamond Stud. Morton and Gibson. And Ron Simmons versus Oz. At least the second cage match is going to have to be changed. Since Scott Steiner suffered a major bicep tear tear on Friday night in St. Louis and he underwent surgery on Monday. So that card kind of shakes out for the most part, a couple of changes here or there, uh, to be that way. I want to ask you if you think had Ric Flair stayed with WCW, do you believe Lex Luger still would have won the title at the Great American Bash? And if so, what do you have done as a babyface? He would have still won the title, I believe. It was time to give him the a chance to be the champion, uh, but I don't believe he would have won it as a babyface. I thought some of Luger's better work was as a heel. No, I totally to agree. No, I don't think we can argue that, but yeah. I do think we could debate the booking from 1991 all day. But I know one thing not up for debate is uh, the best way to support the show, what happened when, and that's to go to prowrestlingtees.com forward slash WHW. Isn't that right, Tony? Yes, you can go there and get, which has become my favorite shirt, the Syracuse Slapdick shirt. You can get the favorite shirt of my good friend, Conrad Thompson, the Pasta Still Rules shirt. It is my favorite. Yes, it's all available at prowrestlingtees.com forward slash WHMonday. Wear it proudly. Come to WrestleCon with your shirt on, because I'm going to have one on. And display it proudly there. Uh, you know what? Come one of our biggest sellers. I hope Klondike. No, Klondike's a good one. But I think what has become our biggest seller in the month of March was the Blockmaster 
Block, Blockmaster is just fucking great, man. It is. It and, really is. Uh, it's got the old Shockmaster helmet there. Yeah. It says Blockmaster below it. Uh, you should check this out. I can't believe it, but uh, my lady friend actually picked up the Thompson shirt in the Thunder style font. Really? Uh, so that was kind of fun. You got a lady friend? I do. Um, my great friend, uh, Chelsea, she has been known to sport the big gold and this thing is angled like you're playing air guitar on it and instead of nwo spray painted on it it's whw some really pretty creative stuff here over prowrestlingtees.com forward slash whw go check it out and when you place an order for a shirt what happens not too long after that tony not too long after that i will call you on your phone and we will talk briefly uh, and i will thank you for supporting what conrad and i do here but also thank you for uh, getting a shirt. And I, I do want to say there have been a handful of, uh, of fans who have bought shirts that I've called and left like two or three messages. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I've tried to call again. Uh, about four or five is probably as far as I'm going to do because I've got to move on. Sure. But uh, if you see a, a number on your cell phone that says... Uh, Blocked or unavailable or unknown. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it might be me. Yeah, so. it's, it's probably Tony yeah. uh, or some other slapdick bill collector. Roll the dice. <laughs> Either way, you're getting a slapdick. Uh, in the July 1st issue of The Observer, Dave reports the future of Ric Flair and WCW is very much in doubt. That's a headline I don't think a lot of people expected to see. No. Uh, he says, quote, according to four different company sources on Monday during contract negotiations between Jim Hurd and Flair's attorney, Dennis Guthrie, Heard told Guthrie the company was giving Flair 30 days notice and rumors began that Flair's final day with the company would be either July 14th in Baltimore or July 22nd in Los Angeles. Now listen to how crazy the booking here was. The Los Angeles main event was advertised as Ric Flair and Paulie dangerously against Missy Hyatt and Lex Luger who were managed by Jason Hervey. Yeah. So that could have been Flair's last match. Yeah. I'm glad he fucking bailed. I'm glad he did too. Uh, but I, I can see where the booking would go here. Uh, Jason Hervey being a Hollywood guy. Sure. Los, Los Angeles, Angeles. Missy Hyatt having the big boobs and being the, the beautiful woman uh, and the the, uh, the dumb blonde type thing. So I can see where they would have booked that. Uh, I, I, I'm going to say I don't I know, but Dusty didn't book every, every house show. Sure. Uh, I know Jody Hamilton was a part of it. Kevin Sullivan was a part of it. They handled that. And Dusty did the television shows and then looked over the bookings. It was back, even back in the day of Jim Crockett promotions, uh, there was a lot of the house shows Dusty didn't book. J.J. did just based on TV, and Dusty would approve it. So whether Dusty actually booked that shit main event, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, When did you uh, hear that, hey, there's, there's an issue here with Flair and his contract? I heard that around that time, I guess about maybe 30, 60 days out. I didn't believe it. You know, you all, you heard a lot of things. Well, this this, this guy's unhappy. I knew Flair was unhappy. I said on a a previous version that Flair would always say, you know, people are trying to get out of New York. I've been trying to get in all the time. That was his. For years. For years. Yeah. So I kind of knew that he, he always wanted to try it there, but I never believed that would happen. I never believed that Jim Hurd would go as far as not wanting flair but he was i mean it was pretty apparent he was tired of the flair gimmick he was, he was tired heard of, you're saying heard was, yeah yeah um 
you know, Rick had been kind of talking about on TV probably since 88 about wanting to leave, but he never does. I mean, he always just stays put. Right. Uh, he attributes that to loyalty and, you know, those who know Rick probably know it's maybe a little bit of uncertainty of, I know I'm a big deal here. What if I get up there and I'm not? I don't want to get up there and not be a big deal. He wants to be the nature boy everywhere he goes. Yeah, well, that's that may be lack of confidence there. Sure. I think you and I and the fans all knew, regardless where Ric Flair would go, he would be successful. Absolutely. Because of how talented he is. Also, this could be the fact that Rick needed Ridlin and couldn't pay attention for one day or the other what he was doing. That has not changed a lot. <laughs> that's right. Uh, we know, we know, you know Rick. I know Rick. Woo. You know, I mean, he's just out. Flair is like... Out of control. Flair told me when WCW went down, I talked to him on the phone, and he said, oh, my daughter's calling me. I'll have to get back with you. He said, I'll call you right back. That was 2001. He's never called me back. <laughs> okay. You haven't talked to Rick since then? Oh, well, we've but, talked. Besides, uh, but he never returned that call is what I'm saying is. is that he's just His attention span was everywhere. So probably for Rick, status quo was fine with him. Because he wasn't thinking about it. Uh, the next day, uh, Tuesday, Meltzer writes, Flair hadn't gotten notified by the office of his notice, heard denied the story, and said the two sides are simply negotiating a contract extension, which from all accounts would require Flair to take a huge pay cut from his one-year contract, estimated at guaranteeing him somewhere between seven hundred and seven hundred and fifty thousand per year, which wouldn't include his cut of merchandising, and uh, Meltzer says that Flair is still under contract through June 1st, 1992. According to Heard, though, Flair has an escape clause in his contract that would allow him to quit, provided he gave 30 days written notice. Heard said that WCW doesn't have a similar escape clause, which seems to mean the company can't legally give Flair notice without having to pay off the duration of the contract, although other sources say there are loopholes to the company's benefit. Tony, before we talk about Flair specifically a little more, I want you to touch on the standard contract language for WCW. I realize you didn't write them, and you probably didn't have this style of contract, but you probably heard some things. Did you believe most contracts had like a 30-day out on either side during this time? No. I, I didn't buy that. The guy that you put so much effort in stock. Why would you let him just leave? Why would you let him leave? Absolutely. I, I don't buy that at all. I didn't have a 30-day contract in mind. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, I no, I didn't. And, of course, I, I don't think my contract was on the level of a Ric Flair or anybody like that, obviously, but no. That's bullshit. Do you uh, buy the numbers here that Dave is reporting that Rick was getting somewhere between 700 and 750 I would think so. That's a lot of money in that 91. Is, that is it's a lot, lot of money now, but right. 91, that's a lot right. of money. Uh, can I tell you a little inside, inside sure. stuff? Okay. Yeah. Um, in the Crockett days, and this was a real small-time family operation, in the Crockett days, we had a, uh, a CFO or an accountant on, on site. His name was David Johnston. And because I was in the office and everybody did everything, David told me one time, he said, I need you to go through all the contracts. Or, no, I need you to go through all the uh, all the, pay, the payouts. The ledger, yeah. The ledger, the payouts, and write them down for me, and we see where we're at, Okay. This was October of 87. Right before okay. the shit. Before the shit, okay. Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes, by October of 87, were making over $600,000 each. That's how much they had 
had brought, brought in. Had brought in. So if they were making that back then, right, seven hundred thousand dollars to me could be a little low, but yeah, I before think, merchandising, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's substantial. Because I remember looking. I remember going through each wrestler had a page, and I would go through and I saw Dusty Rhodes, Virgil Reynolds, Richard Fleer, and I would look for the bottom. I would look for the bottom line, you know, total payout, and I would go. I'm Holy gonna, shit. I'm going to freestyle a guess, and I'm yeah. going to say that uh, that is, what, 26 years ago now? And there's probably still less than two dozen guys who make that a year? Yeah. Even, you know, that was direct money to you. That was money That was money on 1099s. No, no yeah. taxes taken out right. back then. It's and a lot of cash. A lot of cash. And no... Uh, no insurance back then as well. So, and you can see where some guys back then got into some trouble with the IRS. Not some guys. A lot of them. Most. <laughs> Most, right. Because they uh, were making that big money. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so based on that, yes, 700, 750K a year could be a low ball figure, but I, I would say that would be the bottom line for Rick. You, um, you said earlier that you heard about this, you know, before it happened, right. there being a contract issue here right. in the office. You didn't really buy it and thought, eh, it'll, they'll work it out. Right. Was there anybody you remember saying, oh, shit, this is going to be a thing? No. Everybody thought. I think everybody smoke. in our office thought they'd work it out. Okay. Uh, that same issue of the Observer had some PN news that came up twice, and I want to mention that here. Uh, quote, Danny Spivey has been fired with the reason given being his refusal to do a job to PN News on a roadshow this past week. The coincidental timing of this and his testimony in the Zahorian case te- seems too convenient. Um, Tony, what impact, if any, did Vince McMahon's Zahorian case have on WCW at the time? Like, were folks talking about it, or was it just considered not relevant and none of our business at the time? No, I think it had an impact on the business because it was well-known. Sure. And I, I think it probably changed the way uh, Turner looked at their business a little bit and probably was something that was filtered down to Jim Hurd uh, from the guys above. You know, the, the people at, at TBS, there were a lot of people there that didn't like wrestling. Yeah. Hated wrestling. Were embarrassed by wrestling. Uh, and something like the, the Zahorian case would have given them a reason, given them a reason. I, I can remember, uh, and I don't know if Jim remembers this. I was going to bring it up at our show. Uh, we had a little production facility down at the, the bottom level of the CNN center, really small compared to what I was used to at the WWE. And there were some quote unquote suits from TBS down there one day doing a tour of it. And there were like three of them. And I wrote, there was like a little uh, hallway, and then we had a little reception area. Then you go out into the, the atrium. or the, And the guys walked through, and one of them had something smart-ass to say about wrestling. And as they were walking out the door, Jr. snapped. Jr. says, tell me anything else. This goddamn network, goddamn may not be right, but I remember him cussing. Goddamn network does numbers of wrestling. And they looked back to him. He said, keep on going. He really defended the business to the suits that time. Uh, Jim was smart enough to know that they probably weren't way higher ups. Yeah. I don't think he would have said that to Turner or Jack Patrick or anything like that, but he really defended the business. And I remember thinking, but good job, Jim. And I also remember thinking there's probably a more than these, these three shitheads that feel that way about WCW. Absolutely. So, and that was one of the things working against us all those years. 
Um, do you remember there being dirty doctors in WCW? Like, do you remember like this? You made a weird face at me right there. No, but, I don't but, remember any of the doctors. Well, no, I don't mean like, let's name a name here today, yeah. but I just mean, you know, Zahorian was a guy who would just allegedly, according to the reports and rumors and allegations, just be hanging out and it becomes almost like a candy store for the guys where it's, Hey, tell me what you want on your order. Like he's fucking taking a pizza order. Right. And then gives them a bag of dope. And you know, I I say dope. It's not heroin. It's painkillers. It's muscle relaxers. Right. It's steroids. It's all that. It's growth hormone, all that stuff. And then of course we've seen, you know, with the tragedy of Chris Benoit and others where, you start to see guys have developed patterns of they go to this doctor for this and that doctor for that. And there are guys who some guys refer to as Mark doctors. They're just wrestling fans and they like to hang around the guys. And if you, you know, bring their kids some tights and take a picture with their daughter and whatever, then he'll write you a script. Yeah. Do you remember guys hanging around the locker room like that? Or was that not a big deal there? If, if they were doctors, I didn't know who they were. Okay. Uh, but we did have a lot of people hang out. Uh, they could have just been hangers on or yeah, fans. Yeah, or absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But no one came to me and said, hey, if you need some uh, painkillers, this guy can do it for you. Right. I never met anybody like that. But I can also see how painkillers in the business back then were very important to the guys. Absolutely. They worked all the time. Yeah. And they didn't have uh, insurance. I'm not so sure what when they started getting insurance. I know. Luger was really, Lex Luger was really big into that, you know, getting the guys insured, uh, getting the guys benefits. And I, and I really think Luger probably was a big part of that eventually happening. Sure. Uh, I don't know what the deal was for the W, uh, for the WWE back then, but that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. There were, there were doctors there that helped them out. They didn't have to be backstage for them to help them out. No, I agree. Um, it's also reported the same issue. Angel of Death suffered torn ligaments when PN News accidentally splashed onto his knees rather than his chest, and he'll be out of action for four to six months. Tony, we hear a lot of shit from the guys about PN News, and some would allege he developed a rep for hurting guys, which obviously Meltzer's kind of feeding into here with two reports on the same issue. Do you think that was a fair criticism, or do you think this is just... People trying to make something out of nothing. No, I think it's a fair criticism. PN News was very large. Uh, the rap was what made him famous. But I, I kind of thought he was clumsy in the ring. And, I, and I, I don't think he intended to hurt people. He just didn't know how to handle his size. Just did not know how to handle his size. There was That's no it. question about that. Uh, around this time, WCW starts cutting back on house shows, which means they can get away with using fewer guys. And they're doing this to try to cut costs. And they start to bring in these new guys at $300 a night, as opposed to the guaranteed weekly deals of Turner's past. This represents a serious savings because they're only promising 60 dates a year. So the quick math on that is $18,000 annually. Now that sounds like, you know, not a lot of money, but by comparison, uh, the WWF was only offering $50 a night with 15 dates guaranteed for a total contract value of $750. Now, of course, everybody understands in the WWF, they were basing your payoffs on houses and things like that. So you always made more than that. Right. Uh, I should also point out that someone who worked for both companies told Meltzer that the merch split between the companies was a huge difference. And he compared the WWF to roughly 3% of the gross 
whereas WCW paid their guys roughly 25% of the gross. So you're talking about, you know, on a $20 t-shirt, getting 3% of that, uh, which is not a lot of money, uh, 70 cents, uh, or you're talking about 25%. So $4, um, so eight times more per piece, but obviously fewer pieces because Much the more. WBF yeah. was moving some tonnage back then. Yes, they were. Uh, kind of helped me out. Did, did you hear stuff like this in the past? As far as numbers, percentage-wise, yeah. no, I, I never heard. You know, because I didn't give a shit. I, I really didn't. If someone started talking to me about it, and that, that stuff was kind of, uh, you know, we had a guy named Casey Compton back then who was our merchandise guy, uh, and we had... Uh, Jim Hurd, and they kind of did the, all the merchandise stuff. So I didn't get involved in that stuff. Man, there was so much going on. Right. And to be honest with you, Conrad, we things were not going well, I didn't think, and I was still kind of down about moving back. There's a lot of shit that I, I wanted to ignore. I wanted to stay away from because I didn't want shit to drag me down even more than, than sure. I did. And that's why when I, when I heard the rumors about Ric Flair, I didn't go knocking on doors. And, Is that really true? Is that really true? I just thought if if it really happens, I'll find out. I don't I don't need to go and, and be you know uh, even more depressed by it as I already am. The new contract that WCW has given the new guys uh, also says something like if you're injured, WCW will honor their booking sheets where they've already promised you those dates and pay you the three hundred dollars. But if you sign it, you essentially belong to them for a year. You can't work anywhere else, even if they're not booking you. And supposedly, there's no bump for pay-per-view or TV either. Uh, do you remember there being talk of them trying to hire a new crop of guys here at this reduced rate? Is this a Jim Hurd initiative? Is this a Dusty call? Dusty's not ever been known to be frugal. Right. So where does this go? Yeah, this is a Jim Hurd call. And uh, I remember bringing in a, a crop of new guys, again, thinking it's just trying to get new faces in. Right. You know, back in the day, and the day it wasn't that long ago from this, Back in the day, you could bring in new faces from territories. Pop up a town. That, yeah. yeah. And now we're just bringing in guys that have new faces. You needed new faces. Right. So I don't remember it being a cost-cutting measure, but I can that to me, that sounds pretty logical. Um, so it doesn't rub you the wrong way. You get it from a business standpoint, sure, why sure. you would want to do this. Yeah. Do, do you think earning the same money for pay-per-view is fair to the boys? Every boy... Earning the same money on a paper. Well, no, I'm saying, you know, you're making $300 if you're working a spot show in Chillicothe, Ohio, or you're making $300 if you're working a pay-per-view in Baltimore. Yeah. I don't know that that necessarily lines up as being fair. I don't know that 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 is fair, fair, but to me, that's a a pretty good business move because by this time, who are you going to work for? Roll tight on that. Uh, it's worth mentioning that the wrestlers have to pay their own expenses on the road. So yeah. stuff like food, hotel, rental car, all that comes out of that $300 a night. And it's a shame these guys back then didn't have a more affordable way to eat like blue apron. Am I right, Tony? Yeah, Conrad, you're right. And I want to tell you that Lois and I are really enjoying blue apron. Uh, you open the box and you know, the items are fresh. It's the number one recipe delivery service in the country. It's affordable. You have plenty of variety. They'll custom your recipes each week based on what you want. Uh, and Lois and I have been enjoying Blue Apron now for about five weeks. comes in every Sunday. We get three meals a week. It puts Lois in the kitchen where she belongs. 
<laughs> They're going to say, Shivani's a sexist. No, I'm not. If she hear me say this, she would beat me over the head with a rolling pin. But we, we invite you to check out this week's menu. You can get your first three meals free of charge with free shipping. Again, first three meals free of charge with free shipping. I guarantee once you get it, you're going to be hooked. You go to blueapron.com slash Tony. This is very important. Blueapron.com slash Tony because we want for you to let them know you heard about it right here on WHW What Happened With. You'll love how good it feels, it tastes, to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Aprons. Don't wait. This is not stuff that you put into the microwave or put in the oven that is already packaged for you. It is real fresh food that you make, that you chop up, that you cut up. Go buy the instructions on the uh, recipes and you will see how great it is. That's blueapron.com slash Tony. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Wonderful stuff. I find it interesting here in this same issue that Meltzer writes, quote, Eric Bischoff, who did AWA announcing the past few years, will replace Lance Russell on the syndicated WCW Pro Wrestling Show. Still no word on who is going to replace Gordon Soley as Tony Schiavone's partner on Worldwide, although the decision to replace Soley has been made. Because of the bad ratings and syndication, Jim Hurd is apparently going to overhaul the format of all the TV shows. Now, this is in your wheelhouse, Tony, so I want to spend some time talking about this. Uh, We know how much Bischoff would mean to WCW, and it's cool to go back here and see when he was first brought in. But my God, how does anybody replace Lance Russell? You don't. That dude was awesome. He was one of the greats. Yeah. Is he in the Hall of Fame? He should be. You're damn right he should be. Yeah. Absolutely he should be. Uh, let me, let me, let me ask this. If the ratings are dying, is it really the announcer's fault? That's what I'm going with. Okay. I don't understand it. Like, yeah, it's bullshit. book better matches, motherfucker. Exactly. Yeah. Book better matches and let your guys call the matches. I, I listen to me. If you had a great product, I, I would want a Lance Russell or a Gordon Sully doing it. Yeah. Back then, you know, fuck me. Tony Schiavone, <laughs> you know, have him stand with a microphone and do the interviews. Because that's how he started. I I, I think this is just a, a tactic. And, and I think that uh, guys feel this way. Guys who run the company feel this way. That sometimes announcers are more important than they really are. Right. And I, and I got paid a good salary. Uh, when we were going badly years later and Eric Bischoff was running the company, things were bad one time and I was in his office. He said, how much fucking weight have you gained? I said, I don't know, but you think me, me losing weight is going to help us? He said, I don't know, but why don't you try it? And I did lose a lot of weight. Uh, but, again, that's just showing you a boss looking for shit, okay? Back when, and Bruce. How fucking funny is that? Isn't that something? And back when Bruce. I love your response. <laughs> is me losing weight going to help us? Yeah, that, that's what I, and I was, I was being honest. I wasn't being a smart ass. Sure. Because I'm, I'm saying. But it, it, it highlights the the ridiculousness of the statement yes back when i was in the wwe and bruce can probably either confirm this or fucking lie about it knowing him uh back when i was in the wwe vince didn't like he thought i sounded southern Uh, he hates that yeah Yeah. and bruce would say you're sounding too southern for vince i went fuck bruce you know why am i sounding too southern for vince i don't think i sound southern maybe i sound more southern than him or than Jesse Ventura, or than Gene Okerlund, and Bruce and I would go round and round about this. I did SummerSlam, 
And then he didn't have me do Survivor Series, if you'll recall. He put Gorilla Monsoon back on it because he was unhappy with my work back then. And I love that SummerSlam, by yeah, the way. That was a good, I thought it was a great SummerSlam. So, again, the announcers, I thought, put too much stock, or the uh, bosses put too much stock in the announcers. I say that, but then again, when they offer me big money, I always thought, boy, we're really important. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Double-edged sword. Yeah, so if this was stupid. This was absolutely a fucking stupid idea. I mean, Lance Russell, and I had to, had a chance to work with Gordon Soley during that time. It was wonderful working with him. He was a great a gentleman to work with, and he was a lot of fun. So, yeah, uh, here's another story. I said I had heard that Bischoff was coming in. And so I went to talk to Jim Hurd, and I went in. I, we were talking about something. And you knew Bischoff from watching AWA? Yes. Okay. Because uh, I remember they used to – I remember the first time I saw Bischoff on AWA, they had a shot of him. He was a good-looking guy, very handsome guy. And they had a shot of him. They had a chroma keyed or on a green background. And the shot, the static shot they put behind him kept moving. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is some shitty shit I'm watching right here. Not because of him, but because of the way they, AWA. AWA, yeah. the way they produced it. So I went into Herd, and I said, I understand Bischoff's coming in. And he said, yeah. And I said, I think it's good. I think he's a good-looking guy. He said, I know. He's going to be great. And he, and he did that. To fuck with to you. To fuck with me. And I remember that you can't fuck with me because I don't give a fuck. Okay? <laughs> I, you cannot fuck with me. I mean, I, I, I was very unhappy that I was back. I, I thought I made the, the biggest mistake of my life, which turned out I didn't. But I thought I made the biggest mistake of my life. And, you know, if you don't want fucking want me here, let me fucking go. And so, and Ross and I both knew that's why he brought Eric in to not only... Did he want a good-looking young face? He wanted y'all looking over your shoulder. Exactly right. And, and that was that was his style of being a boss, you know, uh, leading by well. And here's the thing: too, chaos. That's not. It's not always bad, you know. If you if you're running a sales organization, to have new blood in there, no, because I, it pumps new life in. It motivates some of the older folks who maybe had become complacent. Yeah. There is a strategy there that I, I could get behind. Yeah. But I do think it's funny that you say, hey, he wanted us to look over our shoulder, and yeah. then the motherfucker becomes the boss. I yeah. Mean, the right. irony of that. Isn't that something? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when did you know Eric was going to be the guy? The boss of WCW? Like the guy. The guy. Uh, I knew that there were three people they considered to run WCW out of uh, the, the Bill Watts regime. Uh, it was Keith Mitchell, me, and Eric Bischoff. I knew Eric wanted it. I knew he wanted it more than we did. I knew he had more business savvy than we did. Bill Shaw came to me and said, I thought you were going to apply for this, and I thought I was going to see something on my desk, which was your uh, direction for WCW. I haven't seen it yet. And I remember going to Lois and said, I guess I should turn it in. I didn't want to do that fucking company. I didn't want to run that company at all. Eric wanted it. Eric had a great plan. And Eric would talk to me about some of the things that he... I and did. you liked it. I liked it. I thought he was... I thought he really wanted to run the company. He had a great plan for the company. And so I knew that Eric was going to be the next guy. The actual day, I don't know. But I remember during that whole process thinking that Eric was going to be the man to do this thing. Because Eric... I, I don't know how big Eric's proposal was, but it was fucking big. Mine was probably like five pages. And I did it out of duress. Do you, um, in hindsight, do you ever wish that you would have 
spent more time on that and tried to make a play. Not your thing. No, I, I, I thought we were, I thought we were, I thought we were a dying company. And so eventually I was right. Yeah. Who wants to captain the Titanic? Exactly. And, and, and I, I don't think, I think I lack in confidence. I never had the confidence Jim Ross had when we would have these meetings. Uh, I never had the confidence that I could turn this company around. Well, you're real. Wrestling is filled with a bunch of fake motherfuckers. Right. And I think that's the difference is everybody else. They don't even believe it themselves. They're trying to put on a performance. Right. And then hope they can convince themselves. Right. Right. And you're just like, eh, might be good. And I mean, I don't know. Tell me. (laughs) So I I never, and and I know that I do realize I had heard this. I don't know where I heard it, that Kevin Sullivan said that I was very depressed when I didn't get it. I didn't get WCW. I was very depressed. He's right. But it wasn't because I didn't get it. Because I was working for those fuckers. Uh, Bill Bill Watts had just cut my pay. Uh, and percentage wise, how much did he cut it? Uh, let's see. He was cutting me twenty thousand dollars a year. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and I could, you know, it wasn't going to be good, but I I really got along with Bill Watts. That's another story. Really got along with him, and he and I talked about it. He was real honest with me, and then. After he decided to cut my pay is when they let him go, Eric came in and immediately put my pay back where it was. Uh, so I was very happy then. So I, I was depressed because I was going to get a uh, pay cut. How smart is Bischoff to put your money back? Yeah. If he felt like you guys were competing, then yeah. he may also think that he may be bitter that he lost his gig. Yeah. And I want this guy on my side, not right. working against me. I'm going to put his money back. Well, Eric depended on me for a lot. I think you can see that from Eric's many, smart motherfucker though. Well, that was yeah, smart. Yeah. He depended on me for a lot. And I think you can tell that because I did all his shit. I mean, I was on, on everything. Uh, so I have, uh, I got a, you know, I know we got way sidetracked here, yeah. but I think Eric does not get the credit he deserves for nope. WCW. There I, is no question. People really want to focus on how it went down and all the negativity. How about let's talk about how it went up. Yeah. That was because Eric Bischoff. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. He had, and he could have done a whole lot more if he didn't have to work with those Turner fucks. He could have. And he also had a problem, and Eric knew this. He, Eric and I talked about this when he finally came back. You know, he came back for a time. And, and that was he entrusted the wrong people at WCW. Yeah. Uh, and... uh I probably should have stepped in and said, you know, Eric, let me do some more of this shit, but I didn't. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he was, he was freaking brilliant. And he, you know, he, he always told me, he said, I like announcing, I like wrestling, but I, what I like better than anything else is doing deals. He liked negotiating deals. Like when he loved the negotiation for the Hulk Hogan deal, he had us a deal at NBC that Turner apparently fucked up. I'm not talking about Ted. I'm talking about the company. And uh, they just didn't know, let him do his thing. So. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about him a lot more in the future. But it is interesting that, you know, the irony, knowing the future of, of what that relationship would look like right here, Bischoff's on his way in, Flair's on his way out. Yeah, right. And that circles back years later. And yeah, it's interesting. Uh, July 8th edition of The Observer. The headline is it's the end of an era and the dawning of a new error. 
E-R-R-O-R. Exactly right. Ric Flair was fired by WCW Monday, effective immediately after both sides failed to reach an agreement on a contract extension, which would be from June 1st, 1992 through May 31st, 1994. Official word was faxed Monday afternoon by Jim Hurd to Flair's attorney, Dennis Guthrie, in Charlotte that Flair's contract is being terminated effective August 1st, 1991. He was scheduled to drop the title to Barry Windham on July 1st in Macon, Georgia, and a revised plan decided upon within the last week that had been the subject of many behind-the-scenes problems. WCW officials weren't expecting Flair to show up in Macon. It was announced in Macon, which airs on television on Saturday, basically the truth that Flair had been stripped of the title due to contractual problems and that the two top contenders, Windham and Luger, would wrestle for the held-up title on July 14th of the pay-per-view show from Baltimore in a cage match. I'm sure we're going to get into all of this, but uh, this is the first time in the 43-year history of the NWA slash WCW that the World Heavyweight title didn't ta- didn't change hands in the ring. And as an old-school wrestling guy, you got to think that's some shit. Yeah, I mean, if you're Jim Hurd and you look back on it, I don't know how he feels about it now. I don't even know where he is. How do you like to, how you feel about the guy who is in charge of the company when that first happened? Yeah. To me, that would be a, a terrible thing to have to, what maybe, th- maybe doesn't give a shit. I don't know, but it was, it was bad news, man. what did you think of them going with, um, Barry and Luger as the two top guys? You're okay with it? Yeah. Luger was, Luger looked, looked great. Got a pretty good push, obviously. Uh, and Barry was one of the great workers of the business. I thought that was, that was as good as anything. Um, I guess it can be reported here. The original plan was for Flair to drop the title to Luger in Baltimore. The hangup was that the two sides haven't been able to come to terms on a contract extension that had already been verbally agreed upon seemingly forever. WCW offered Flair 350,000 per year, which would cut his current salary in half or slightly more than half. According to Flair, as quoted in the Miami Herald in Wednesday's paper, WCW asked Flair to have his salary cut in half effective immediately. Other reports are that WCW wanted Flair to agree to terminate his existing contract and sign a new one at 350, but TBS sources say the disagreement was over the extension and that no major pay cut was requested for the period covered by the current contract, which is to expire May 31st, 1992. Flair wasn't willing to take such a cut, uh, much less for the extension period. And there's certainly ego involved with him earning Lex less than Lex Luger, who supposedly was slated to make $600,000 and also less than Sting. Uh, I get why this was a big deal to Rick, because those are two guys that you could argue that Ric Flair kind of made into superstars. And now with the idea that he's supposed to make a fraction of what they make, I could see how Flair would take issue with that. No question. Did you hear his side of this? And any of this number about going from 700 to 350, did any of that ring a bell to you? That does. I, I knew that. Look, we got reports from the Miami Herald saying that he wanted a drastic pay cut. Turner officials saying that it was not about a pay cut. It was about an extension that he wanted. Somebody's bullshitting someone here. Sure. So I don't know who's lying here. Only thing I can tell you is this. The only thing that I feel in my heart that I know for a fact in all this negotiation is this. This is not a slight on Ric Flair. This is just the way it is. Don't think for a minute that Vince McMahon's people weren't talking to Ric Flair. Oh, of course they were. Yeah. And Well, and, and here's the thing, you know, 
Bruce has talked about it before. Uh, the Brother Love Show on the original SummerSlam from 1988 wound up being Hacksaw Jim Duggan, but the plan was for it to be Ric Flair. And ultimately, Rick got cold feet. Of course, Arn and Tully were already up there. Right. So ultimately, Rick got cold feet and didn't make the jump and decided to stay. And he has harbored a lot of ill will towards Jim Crockett for no one giving him a heads up that Turner only wanted this deal and would only buy WCW or Crockett promotions if Flair was under contract. And ultimately, Crockett wasn't going to have to pay the fucking money anyway. Turner was. And so Rick, still in 2017, was half hot at Jim Crockett for not giving him a heads up and saying, hey, we're going to sign you to a bigger deal and it won't matter because I'm not fucking paying it anyway. And we'll let Turner pay it. Yeah. So he signed for less thinking, well, business has been down. You know, I'll be a team player and didn't get the big money that he probably could have got from Turner. And now this is a culmination of that. So although the two sides here are saying that they're arguing about different things in present day, Rick would say, no, it was about the extension. Yeah. You know, in my conversations with Rick, he's told me, Hey, I wanted an extension. Everybody else is getting locked in. They're bringing these new guys in for no money, chicken shit money. I'm not going to let myself expire when I know I've got opportunities to go do more. Right. If you want me to drop the belt and make somebody, I don't have a problem doing that. Just guarantee me. I'm going to keep this same money for a little longer. Right. Not a raise the same money. And why wouldn't they do that? If this was the same company that what two years ago or two years prior, a year prior, wanted to buy the company because they wanted Ric Flair with the company. Yeah. Why would they do this a couple of years later? Well, here's why. Uh, one also has to reason that WCW lost approximately $6.4 million in 1990. And there has to be a day of reckoning when losses are that high. My feeling is that WCW with all the cutbacks it is making in contracts probably didn't like the idea of having to pay Flair $750,000 for the next year when they were probably just going to use him to get younger wrestlers over. However, in this case, there's far more to that scenario than meets the eye. So Meltzer's kind of freestyling there, uh, that, you know, and let me just, uh, uh, you know, there's not a weird, there's no way to talk about this later in life. Flair and dusty were pretty good friends right here. That's probably not the case. And dusty is trying to push Dustin and make other guys and pay himself and take care of his friends. He and Flair are not super tight at the time. Flair obviously has fallen out of favor with Jim Hurd, who wants him to wear an earring and call himself Spartacus and change his look and not be the nature boy. So in an effort to, hey, I'm already off TV as Dusty Rhodes. I need to maintain my position as the booker. If Hurd doesn't like Ric Flair, let me jump on here and say, hey, let's get on board with that. Maybe we don't need Ric Flair. We can save money. We can't justify the contract, blah, blah, blah. It feels like the American dream and the pizza man trying to tag team Ric Flair. Here. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't see that being beyond the realm of possibilities at all. Sure. Absolutely. Did Absolutely. you talk to Rick at any point during all this? Uh, you couldn't talk to Rick. I mean, we could bullshit each other, you know, always, you know, fuck around with each other, but Rick and I never did have, you know, a very, serious conversation. A serious, no, we yeah. never did have a serious conversation because basically when Rick and I got together back then, we were both pretty drunk. Yeah. Roll title now. Okay. Uh, Meltzer reports late last week, a meeting was held with Turner home entertainment about changing the pay-per-view main event to Luger versus Wyndham. 
THE vetoed the idea, saying all the publicity had already gone out, in, including an expensively produced rap video for the show. In addition, it was too late to redo the infomercials for Request TV. This may have been someone's idea from the start, since the Flair-Luger match had barely been pushed on television and instead had been reserved for Johnny B. Bad, the Desperados, who weren't even on the show. Love the Desperados. And PN News. Uh, Flair was at least partially responsible for Dusty Rhodes' departure as Booker in 1988 when the two had a blow-up and Flair was asked to drop the NWA title at Starcade 88 to Rick Steiner in under five minutes. Unfortunately for Rhodes, Jim Crockett wasn't in charge of the company after November 1st, and TBS originally planned to build the company around Flair. That wasn't the reason Rhodes ended up out as Booker, but it led to a few situations that were the reasons. Whether this was true or not, certainly there were a lot of people that expected Flair's role after losing the title to be to put over Dustin Rhodes. WCW would have to get itself a new belt since Flair actually owns the current belt, and under the circumstances, there doesn't seem to be a reason for him to return it. So what's interesting about this is, even now, in 2017, if you go Google... Great American Bash 1991, the promo poster that was sent out features a giant poster or a giant image of Ric Flair in his robe with the belt and, and Lex Luger there. And it's also got Missy Hyatt with blonde hair and some athletic gear. And I mean, he's centered around the whole deal. But I find it interesting that this feels disconnected again, which kind of lends itself to what you were talking about earlier. Turner didn't really know what the fuck they were doing. So the people who are producing the video and the pay-per-view Turner home entertainment don't want to change the advertising when the wrestling company understands we're not going to be able to deliver what's in the fucking advertising. Um, were you involved in that process and how fucking ridiculous does that sound? Well, it was ridiculous because where I came from, uh, the WWE, they were more organized with their thought, right? That was the once you're taking a look at. WCW, Turner Home Entertainment, which was Steve Chamberlain, great guy, smart guy, knew his stuff. But they should not have been doing, they should not have been sending out the pay-per-view stuff. It should have been WCW sending it out. Right. Not another division of Turner Broadcasting. And there is one of the reasons that we failed anyway. Also, I do know, I do know this. According to Turner Home Entertainment, the promotion for the next pay-per-view had to be sent out because of deadlines much earlier than we were ready to promote it. That's why you would see during this year commercials in the show that just generically promoted the yeah. next pay-per-view. Right. Which, believe you me, you look at some of that shit, you think, that sells nothing. That gets nobody excited about the next pay-per-view. But because of the deadlines, we had to adhere to those deadlines. And it was wrong. It was absolutely wrong. THE was probably right. They probably had these early deadlines they had to, because that they had to uh, adhere to, but it was still wrong. WCW should have done all that stuff, not Turner Home Entertainment. I totally agree. Meltzer continues, and this is a major issue and another reason to go subscribe to WrestlingObserver.com, but he writes, what's the future for Flair? Most likely the WWF. What Vince McMahon will do with him is anyone's guess. And he also kind of goes into, what if that doesn't happen? If word got out on the indie market that Flair was available, he could probably charge $2,000 plus trans and get two or three bookings per week. But the indie world is a hard grind with no guarantees, and it means dealing with some shady operators. Damn right. 
in Japan, he'd get the respect for his ability and certainly be able to get a big money deal. But for him to make it today in Japan would mean he'd have to change his style somewhat. Flair has never had a chance to go to the WWF and he may have made that move this past year. Had there been an escape clause in his contract, if he had done it, then it would almost been a sure bet to have him headline this past WrestleMania against Hulk Hogan, which would have been WrestleMania seven. Uh, while at one time, Ric Flair and the NWA were synonymous, Ric Flair and WCW are not synonymous. WCW is synonymous with disaster. Ric Flair is synonymous with misused potential. I think McMahon will push him as one of the top singles attractions, but there's still that thing in the back of one's mind that wonders, does King Hoss Flair have a nice ring to it? Of course, Meltzer's joking that right. Vince always changes everybody's gimmick and wouldn't just let him be the nature boy. Right. When you realize, hey, this is really going to fucking happen, yeah. and Flair's leaving, did you think he'd go the indie route, he'd go to Vince, or he's going to try to go to Japan? Well, I didn't. I didn't. He wouldn't go the indie route because indie wrestling at that time. I don't know how it's perceived now. I don't even know in the state of wrestling today what is perceived as indie. But the indie route back then uh, was perceived as a bunch of, as you said from, from Meltzer, a bunch of shady operators. Right. That you couldn't even be guaranteed you even get paid. Uh, I never thought he would do that. I thought Japan was a possibility. I pretty much knew that the WWF was where he was going to go. How did you think he would do there? Well, I thought he would be great. But then again, I was concerned about would they change his persona just to stick it up WCW's ass. Which because they had done. That's, what, that's why they put polka dots on Dusty Rhodes. Sure. That's why... Uh, uh, Dustin Rhodes natural became gold dust. Let me ask you this. Um, naming one man gang, Akeem, the African dream. Yeah. Putting dusty roads in polka dots. Right. And making him clean toilets and yeah. stuff like that. Um, naming the manservant for the million dollar man, Virgil. Right. You think all that's a rib on dusty. Yeah. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Bruce no Richard. Well, Bruce Pritchard told me, and I remember the day he sent me down. He said, Dusty's coming in. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, we're giving a gimmick where he's, he said, you ready? I said, yes. He's going to be wearing polka dots. I said, you're a lying motherfucker. He said, no, he's going to be wearing polka dots. I'm serious. I said, no, he's not. I said, you're ribbing me. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. And I called Dusty just to feel him out. He said, you glad I'm coming in? I said, I'm, I'm thrilled. I didn't say, are you fucking wearing polka dots? I just let it ride. And then I saw him with his fucking polka dots. There was no question what they were doing. No question. Listen, Vince, look, if you go to, if you go to uh, the WWE Network and you click on shows and you click on pay-per-views, down at the bottom, It's always, Vince has always wanted to stick it up WCW Turner Broadcasting's ass and Dusty Rhodes' ass. And the, by subtle ways, he did that. Uh, the, January, the July 1st television taping in Macon, Georgia, uh, has 4,700 folks there. And it's supposed to be a uh, pretty eventful taping because this is where Rick was supposed to drop the belt. But instead... Uh, it was an announcement from Gary Michael Capetta that Flair was stripped of the title, which drew great applause. Hmm. That kind of shocked me in hindsight to yeah. read that. Right. 
Now, there are other clips on YouTube and out there on the internet where you see him making this announcement before house shows and people boo. Uh, but apparently the first time they did it in Macon, there was a positive reaction, or at least per Meltzer. Uh, he also reports that everyone had to work overtime in the studio this week because all the syndication has been taped through the end of July, including references to the Great American Bash finishes. But now, of course, those finishes have to be changed and uh, edited out of the late July shows, and all the references to Flair have to be edited out. Do you remember that being a, a tedious process? Oh, yeah. We did a lot of work to, to change that shit around. This starts to get some uh, mainstream coverage um, about Flair leaving. It runs in the AP. It runs in the, the Night Rider National Wires. Uh, it's all over the country. And, of course, it's it's really big news in North Carolina, and he's obviously the biggest wrestling star in the history of North Carolina. Uh, it's even on the TV there. Um, what's the feeling from your end when you know that this is really happening? He's really gone. Is this, does this start to feel like, uh, the beginning of the end for WCW? Does this kind of play into your doomsday scenario a little bit? Yeah, I think we're right at the end now. I think we are completely fucked now. Beginning of the end, I thought the beginning of the end was when I first walked through the door. Or the beginning of the end was when Jimmy Crockett sold his company to Turner Broadcast. Uh, I mean, they can, look, we had a meeting. It was a Christmas meeting right before Christmas. Uh, We were told that Ted Turner was going to address WCW, the office. And if the boys wanted to show up, they could show up. We did it down at the Omni Hotel, and this was right before Christmas of 1990. And Ted Turner walked up and talked to us all, and he said, Now, I know WCW is losing money. He said, but don't worry about that. He said, hell, CNN lost money for 10 years before we could make a profit. So we, are, we, we stick with things if we think it's going to be. And he said, you know, you know, he talked about how much wrestling was important to him. Uh, he even talked to Gordon Soley because he knew Gordon. Uh, Big Van Vader was there and asking for his autograph, which we all thought was kind of funny. Uh, and Flair even said something to me afterwards. He said, that's a great show of confidence right before Christmas time for all of us. And then, of course, 91 happens. Yeah. And Flair's no longer there. And I'm thinking, well, now we're, you know, we are really fucked now because this is our star. And he's going, he's leaving us. What do we have left? So it was a pretty depressing moment for me personally, and I think for most guys in the office. Um, Meltzer reports that uh, the problems really started more than a year prior to this, back in Chicago when Flair was supposed to drop the belt in late March 1990 to Lex Luger and refused to do so. And Meltzer says there was a lot of factors involved in that decision, but ultimately it boiled down to Flair negotiating to get a contract extension and or release, which would allow him to go to the WWF if he would drop the title. Um, when Flair finally lost the belt to Sting at the bash, which we just recently kind of touched on last week, uh, Jim Hurd refused to give Flair a contract release, although there were plenty of negotiations regarding an extension through June of 94. What was agreed upon is that if a contract extension wasn't met by a certain date, uh, then he would have the right to terminate this with a 30-day notice. And they just had to honor $14,000 a week during that 30-day notice. 
And this is the escape clause that Flair wanted at the time. So he could leave whenever he wanted to. So apparently that doesn't come into play until March of 90. Uh, now, according to several sources, <clears throat> excuse me, the story that WCW gave notice uh, that they were going to terminate the current contract on August 1st was that they were trying to re-sign Flair to a new contract for only 350 this year, 350 next year, and 250 the year after that. Uh, that's a major pay cut, and obviously it does cut back the number of dates. Um, and you have to appreciate that while you can say, well, that's not fair to him, WCW has been losing millions, uh, and there's lots of other cuts that have to happen. But what's interesting about this, I guess, is Sid Vicious was offered $1.2 million over three years in April. Uh, now, you could argue that Sid is younger than Flair, but he certainly wasn't the draw that Flair was. And the money that was offered uh, for Randy Savage to jump to the w- from the WWF to WCW, which was already happening in 91, was half a million dollars a year. So it's easy to see where Flair kind of feels like he's entitled uh, to more than this. And he ultimately uh, no-shows their plan to have him drop the belt in Macon at TV, uh, feeling that that would lose some leverage. Um, Of course, that's all been documented a lot. uh, But that coupled with the poor ratings from the Clash of the Champions, them hemorrhaging cash, they had to start thinking about what's a good decision for us. Uh, So I guess you could maybe argue that you saw it from both sides, but it is something that a lot of people never thought that they would see. And it ties up the NWA too, uh, because they have made Ric Flair the world champion and he's the NWA world champion, but now he's leaving and he's taking the belt with him because he's got a $25,000 deposit. Uh, Herd says he doesn't own the belt because that $25,000 deposit was paid well before Herd was even around. So Flair wants the money and interest, and that doesn't happen. So they send Doug Dillinger to pick up the belt. Flair says, I'm not giving it to you. And he FedExes the belt to Vince McMahon. And that starts the conversation, and everybody starts to believe uh, that on September 1st, Flair is going to the WWF and WrestleMania eight is most likely going to be Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan. Never happened though. Did it? No, it didn't. Yeah. I I thought they dropped the ball on that. I thought they absolutely dropped the ball on that, but seeing how Vince felt about WCW, that would have been him uh, saying that WCW was equal to him. Right. So I think the ego got in the way there. Um, I was shocked when it wasn't Flair and Hogan. I think a lot of people were. Yeah. To me, that was the match. At that time in the sport, that was the match that everyone wanted to see. Why it didn't, and I know we're not here to talk about WWF and WrestleMania. Why it didn't headline WrestleMania, I'll never know. With the exception of egos had to be involved. What did you uh, think of Flair taking the belt? Was that perceived as being um, bad business or a slight against the boys of the company or anything like that? Or was that just him doing what he thought he had a right to do? I, 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 was all, I had no problem with that at all because I thought Flair was getting fucked over. And 
because of how terrible our business was, how terrible our business was run. I had no problem with that at all. I remember when Bobby Heenan was the first man to show the belt on TV without flair. Right. And I remember seeing that. I remember thinking, holy shit, this is fucking surreal. When Heenan was showing the belt. And our ass is done. Yeah. And, and they, they instead opt to, uh, it's reported in the observer and these are not real numbers. Uh, and not everything in the observer is right. A hundred percent of the time. Most of the time it is, despite what Bruce and Tony may say, I'm going to argue that most of it's accurate. Did but, I ever say was most of it was inaccurate? No, but I probably give Meltzer a little bit more props than Pritchard does. Don't, oh, don't for I? sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pritchard wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire. Okay. Um, Anyway, the, uh, Dave reports that uh, WCW has commissioned a new belt to be made for roughly $17,000 and that the old belt they were replacing was like forty grand. Neither one of those numbers are true. Uh-huh. Um, but we should touch on the belt briefly because back in those days, if you were going to be the champ, you had to come out of pocket with $25,000, which is Yikes. the deposit we were talking about. All right. Um, but if you want to be the champ today, you can just go to leatherbydan.com and create your own custom championship for Bell for just nine ninety nine. And you know what? What's that? It would look a hundred times better than what they came up with that years ago. <laughs> Wouldn't it? <laughs> it absolutely, absolutely would. Absolutely it would because Dan leatherbydan.com is the belt that you want to wear wherever you go. Absolutely. Okay. I'll bet you right now there's a lot of NFL locker rooms that have guys with leather by Dan belts. I'm sure there are. Wouldn't surprise me at all if, let's say, they have the top weightlifter or the, or let's say, the, my Washington Redskins. The top weightlifter wins the championship belt. It's probably done by Leather by Dan because it's done to your specification. It's only nine ninety nine. You don't need to be a 16-time world champion to have a belt. You can have your belt in as little as 10 weeks. Dan even takes payment plans at leatherbydan.com, and the deposit is a lot less than that $25,000. Remember, this is handmade. It's custom-made for you. Custom-made for you. You know, I. why not get a Deborah McMichael belt? Why not? Okay. Isn't it time that you got nudes of your wife on a belt, Jay-Z? I mean, Super Dave, don't you need... To let everyone know that you're the slapdick champion of Texas. Dan even makes kid sizes. You know who you are. Leatherbydan.com is fast and affordable. Uh, and you may be so excited about your new Leather by Dan belt that you wear it to the bars and offer to stir ladies drinks with your Johnson. Uh, you could be styling and profiling in this thing in as little as 10 weeks. Now, he can't guarantee... Uh, that when you get this belt, you won't be strutting around the office with it. He guarantees that you'll get it quickly in as little as 10 weeks, and he guarantees a great price. But he makes no promises that you won't get ass naked and tie balloons around your dick at parties while you're wearing it. Because that is the quality that you get at leatherbydan.com. And why is that? Because Dan is the fucking man. In the July 22nd edition of The Observer on Sunday night, WCW has its first chance to prove it can survive without Ric Flair. By the end of the Great American Bash, a show Ric Flair could not have saved. The only thing proven was that Flair was worth more to the company than it ever realized. That's Dave Meltzer's opening line about the uh, bash. What do you say? I say he's right. I, I say that 
it was a, I've used the word surreal already uh, this week. I'll use it again. I think what happened with Flair just put a, a dark cloud over the company. I don't know if it bothered anybody's work rate that night, but I know we didn't feel right the entire night. Uh, it's reported that uh, about a week prior to the show, WCW offers Flair a one-year contract for $750,000. And according to several sources, this was more of a response from the legal team from TBS because they've discovered they had no grounds for the firing, which is pretty hilarious when you think about it. And there's talk that WCW thought they could get Flair to come back and renegotiate because he just opened up a gym in Charlotte and needed guaranteed money in order to fund that and uh, make a living. And there's no real way for him to earn even $350,000 in wrestling at the time, according to many folks' estimations, unless he was pushed in a main event type spot with the WWF and maybe had a main event slot at WrestleMania he wouldn't earn anywhere near that 750 figure with Vince. Uh, Meltzer even says it's approximately triple of what the Intercontinental Champion was making at the time, and there was no chance you could get anywhere near that working on the Indies. Of course, we all know Flair turned down that 750, and he did that because allegedly there was no guarantee as to how he would be used, and there pretty much was a guarantee he'd be used ineffectively uh, because... Well, that's just how WCW was going at that point. Exactly right. Um, do you did you think when they were making an offer here as kind of a last ditch effort that when it was quote unquote nut cutting time, they'd just make a deal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no I I, I never saw this one coming, but but I I think that that uh, they realized they made a mistake. Doesn't surprise me that according to semi-reliable sources, that they offered him that one-year deal is $750,000 because they realized they had fucked up and had no cause to get rid of him. Let me, let me just tell you that semi-reliable sources is yeah. code for, hey, Rick says they offered him seven fifty. dollars okay. Now, okay. I'm not saying, I just know that Rick and Dave are friends, and anybody who's read this Observer for any length of time yeah. knows that they're boys. All right. I uh, didn't. I didn't know that. I knew Dave had a lot of boys, but I didn't know Rick was one of them. Um, there's also talk coming into this because, you know, wrestling is very much a business where everybody wants to bullshit everybody and everybody's smarter than everybody. Yeah. So there's a lot of folks who think, oh, this is just an angle. He'll come out and interfere in the main event. Did, did that ever cross your mind? No. You knew this was a shoot. Yeah, it was done. Did you hear anybody else talking about that? Thinking maybe fans thinking, oh, yeah. he'll be here in the main event. Yeah, I, I, there was a lot of people that thought. That would happen. I I know I I thought now nah, it's not going to happen, but I know I still had hope that maybe this was a bad dream, right? Well, it feels like a bad dream because yeah. uh, when the uh, reports come in from the Observer, zero point zero are the amount of thumbs up, thumbs down two hundred and thirty nine, thumbs in the middle two. So ninety nine point two percent gave the show a thumbs down. Tony, you were there, yeah. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. Uh, but also, regardless of what happened that night, it was going to get a thumbs down. Sure. Uh, best match of the night, uh, according to the Observer, was Barry Windham and Lex Luger. Uh, worst match of the night was the scaffold match. The show drew around seven thousand fans. About fifty five hundred were paid. Uh, the gate was ninety nine thousand dollars, which is the highest gate for a WCW event. 
since the previous Great American Bash with Flair and Sting. And considering what a high the Great American Bash 1990 was, to compare that one year later, what a fucking fall, man. I know. It's really incredible. Yeah, it is. To think about those two shows kind of back to back. Uh, well, something I found kind of fun about this is they did an opening sequence here on the pay-per-view where it's essentially the, um, the ESPN football theme as they're making the approach into the stadium, uh, or into the arena. And they show the guy, just go up to the ticket counter and say two tickets, please. And they hand him two tickets and he just walks in. I know it's a little thing, but there was no money exchange there. He just goes <laughs> up with those two tickets and they give them to him. And I know I'm overthinking it, but it is funny when you see the amount of paper and you're like, wow, okay, free tickets. Yeah. Just walk up and ask. Absolutely. That was before the days of you could just go up and show your phone to them now. Yeah, I already paid them in advance. Uh, the commission made it clear before the show there could be no blood allowed. This is per Dave Meltzer. From what I understand, there wasn't much of a problem because Jack Petrick was against blood being used on the show as well. Of course, with a chain match followed by two cage matches, there are those who would be upset about that. Neither cage match had any reason to be a cage match. That's all directly from the observer. Tony, do you remember the commission or Petrick being against blood? Do you remember that being a conversation? Yeah. The, the, the commission was against blood. Was Jack Petrick against blood? I know the Turner quote unquote people were against blood. Is that Jack Petrick? Is that the Turner board? Right. Which involved Bill Shaw back at that time. We would late, later, uh, you know, run WCW. I think that the Turner people were against blood. Uh, that could have been Petrick, but yeah, blood was on its way out by then. One dark match on the show. Uh, Meltzer writes that it was the junk food dog pinning mm. Black Bart in 10 minutes in the opening match. He says the crowd didn't even watch this match and instead watched the pregame show that aired on the big screens in the building. He gave it a dud. Yeah, it was a dud. And I, I, you know, uh, junkyard dog made plenty of money. Wasn't a great worker. Why would you call him the junk food dog? To be a dick. To be a dick. Okay. You, that told me right there that Junkyard Dog never called Dave Meltzer. No, of course Because cause, cause Meltzer would have never written that. That's, that's just that's yeah. bullshit. That just tells you what type of person Meltzer is. Well, also, too, he's trying to be entertaining. He's trying to sell tickets. He's in business for himself. Tickets, I mean, newsletters. I mean, right. Uh, Dave Meltzer's an entertainer. And, right. any, and I think not really embracing that shows a grasp. I mean, he's not... And I know a lot of people say, oh, he's the greatest journalist since this or that. I, I've loved his shit for 20 years, but I also get that him making little snide and snarky comments keeps some people engaged and coming back and All gives right. them a reason to read it. He's trying to sell fucking issues. Yeah, I, mean, I, I get it. Um, first match on the show, Bobby Eaton, who everybody agrees is one of the best performers of all time. He's in phenomenal shape here. He's tagging with P and News, not in as good a shape. Uh, and they're taking on Terrence Taylor and stunning Steve Austin. They've got Lady Blossom with them. And this is a scaffold match that goes six minutes. Uh, unannounced in the pre-match hype, they changed the rules here. So it's not a traditional scaffold match rules situation. Now they have a capture the flag element. This was not great. No, it was one of the worst matches ever in a pay-per-view. News was so fucking scared that... It had he shit himself on top of that scaffold, it wouldn't have surprised me. You watch that, he just locked himself in. I mean, how could a man that big be on a scaffold like that without killing himself? Well, I do think it was, you had a smart line in here because at one point, 
He's not moving, and he's just standing holding the rail in front of his own flag. And right. you referred to him as like a goalie. Yeah. Because if you're going to get that flag, you got to go by him, and that's yeah. a lot of man to get past. Yeah, boy. But in reality, he ain't fucking moving. <laughs> that's right. That was, that was me improvising. By sure. golly, how about that? Maybe they didn't, they didn't pay me enough money. Uh, going to the ring that night. Maybe I should renegotiate my contract. Absolutely. Why not? Shit. They had the money in the budget. They yes. just cut flair. <laughs> um, they're, they're walking down this big ramp, which we talked about last week on yeah. our Halloween Havoc episode. Yeah. And you see rows and rows and rows of empty floor seats yeah. from the way it was set up. Yeah. And, and maybe it's because who wants to be on road double Z on the floor? We yeah. can't see shit. Exactly. Uh, but it looks, it looks bad. It, was it a... Was it a rib on Bobby Eaton to have him with PN News here? It feels like this is almost punishment to be, after you're going from Dennis Condry and Stan yeah. Lane, now you're with fucking PN News? No, I don't think it was a rib on Bobby. I think they're just looking for someone to help PN News so they wouldn't puke. Um, of course, t- what, what could Bobby say to you that you would understand? Yeah. Exactly. Um, is that a Huntsville thing? It is talking like that. It is, yeah. Okay, I do a podcast though. I'm overcoming. I beat anorexia too. <laughs> um, <laughs> Terrence Taylor was uh, the computerized man of the 1990s. Yes, he was. Scale of one to ten, how fucking horrible is that? What that he was the computerized man of the 1990s? What the fuck does that even mean? All right, okay. You know, I, I was involved in that whole gimmick. You do realize that, don't you? That was your idea. I'm shitting on. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't my idea. I'm shitting on. Uh, Terry Boatwright was a friend of mine and only of course she is. Stop it. Terry Boatwright was a close friend of mine. I'm sure she was. Okay, that everybody thought I was having sex with and I wasn't. Okay. Who was? Okay. Who was having sex with well, Dustin Rose. <laughs> they got married, okay? Yeah. Terry was a good friend of mine, and I remember Ole Anderson saying to me, and this is before Dust Dusty took the book. She's a good-looking girl. What can we do with her? And I remember talking to Terry. did our makeup. I said, why don't you and I get together and discuss what, what you can be? And we came up with a casting couch. No. No, we didn't I'm, go to you, son bitch. I'm going to run this company someday, sugar. <laughs> if you know what's good for you. And I ain't going to run it in the ground, baby. No. She was a good-looking girl. How do you feel about water buffaloes? <laughs> I can shampoo one. You. <laughs> Oh, son of a bitch. Where was I? What was I talking You're to? You're talking about how you used and to. And we, uh, we came up with Alexandra York, the, the lady, the computerized woman. And uh, we talked about that, and that was an idea we had, and I, I guess they ran with it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dutch Mantell, who's always been a good guy and a, and a very talented guy, one of the most talented guys in the business, had an idea for a, a – uh, a video where he would get with Alexandra York and say, uh, can you tell us the, the strong suits or the strong points for the desperados? And she would print out something, a little spit, a little, little piece of paper. And he said, now tell us our weaknesses. And she would hit a couple of buttons and it would keep spitting out the paper, keep spitting out the paper. We would go to a match. We'd come back, let's check with the desperados. And now they're all fighting the paper and everything. That's pretty fun. Yeah, D- D- he, uh, D- Dutch had all that shit in his head. He was a very underused guy. Uh, but it, so anyway, going back to that, uh, we had some uh, we had some talks, and I thought uh, the, why not? You know, everything's kind of 
moving to computers, right, back then? So the the goal is then let's give them more dignified names. So they're Terrence Taylor and Richard Morton. Well, she gave them those names because she wanted to be more dignified. She did. Not me. Not us. So your idea was to go out and have wine with her (laughs) and figure out what she was into (laughs) and then say, that's great. I'll put you with Dutch. (laughs) No, that was not it at all. My idea was come up with ideas and she wanted to be more involved with through the armpit over the muscle. (laughs) She wanted to be more involved with the company from the bottom. No, no. How how did they do it? What? Never mind. Uh, You know, you, you, you are at many times, you're a no good motherfucker. Many times. Thank you. I resemble that remark. You're welcome. Uh, when did you know that, uh, Steve Austin was going to be special? Oh, first time I saw him. Really? Absolutely. What was it about him that made you realize that? Because he he looked the part. Hell, he could work. Uh, his uh, it just he was just absolutely tremendous. He was uh, and he has it, a swagger about him. Yeah, a swagger about him. And if you want to take a, just a slice of what was wrong with us and what was right with them, we had stunning Steve Austin, and they had Stone Cold. They took. Hey, he's a Texas guy. They took what was best about him and made it best and made him a mega star. We didn't do it, did we? No. No. But you did make him the TV champ, and he's being presented here as a big deal, and he's got Lady Blossom with us. And that's worth the price of admission. I need you to tell me I, a little I, bit. Off. I knew you were going to lead me into that. Yeah. Yeah, nice lady. Mega, massive boobs. <laughs> massive. Okay. And you couldn't help but notice them. Let me, but, ask, let me ask you a question. <laughs> You know what you're trying to do, don't you? I've been married almost 36 years. Listen, you're trying to fuck that over is what you're trying do you to do. you think there's no chance Lois Shivani, A, is awake right now, and B, Would even listen to us. is listening to yeah, this. She doesn't no. listen to us. She's cooking Blue Apron and watching Young and the Restless. She's not fucking with this okay. podcast. Okay. You're right. Um, I've noticed a trend here. All right. You loved Ever McMichael. Yes. Really enjoy Lady Blossom. Yes. You and Steve Austin have a lot in common. Well, in many ways, no. No, no. I'm not saying you're Eskimo brothers. Okay. I'm just saying, Google it. I'm just saying, um, y'all have similar tastes. Y'all like the same things. We notice beautiful women. Blonde hair, big yeah. boobs. Yeah. Roll time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, some of the things that Lady Blossom put on or failed to put on when those big matches we're pretty revealing, don't you think? Uh, I don't have a comment. Okay. Uh, what are they doing? What's, what's, the, what's the divas doing now in WWE? What are, what are they? One of them is Ric Flair's daughter. What's that? One of them is Ric Flair's daughter. Well, I daughter. understand a, one of them is Ric Flair's daughter, but a lot of them are just very voluptuous women, wouldn't you say? I'm sure they're all very nice ladies. Well, of course they are. We're talking about Lady Blossom. Why yeah. are you trying to change the subject? I don't, where are you trying to go with this? I I just wanted you to give me some lady. Bl- Did you ever try to munch them panties? No. Okay. No. Well, listen, I play the hits, man. How fucking dangerous was this scaffold? Oh, it was, it was terribly dangerous. You, I never knew. And even back when the road warriors took on the midnight express, I don't know why they ever came up with something like this. It seems like ridiculous. It's somebody ridiculous. could fucking die. Exactly. Live on pay-per-view. Cornette blew out his knee. Well, yeah, but that's like the tamest thing that could happen. Exactly. From this. Yeah. That's like the best possible yeah. scenario. I, I 
but again, you're you're reaching for things. You're you're you know down the road they're going to have a well, chamber of horrors match. They're reaching for something different to try something different. On a scale of one to ten, would you say as far as in ring performer, Bobby Eaton is a fucking nine or better? Yes, and. Stone Cold is in that neighborhood. Yes. And Terry Taylor's in that neighborhood. Yes. Let's put them on a fucking tiny scaffold and not right. let them do anything. Yeah. What the fuck? What the fuck is right? Yeah, I mean, I get if you've got guys who can't. Like, put Eligante up there. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> He's not going to fucking well, let's put, put on a, a clinic down here. Yeah, well, let's put the tallest guy and the fattest guy, PNDs and Eligante, put them on a scaffold. Let's... And, and say the winner is the one that doesn't fucking die. Okay. <laughs> it's a Roman Coliseum. Right. Put lions below it. Exactly. There must be a winner. If you don't die, you win. <laughs> Are you not entertained? Oh, my God. It just seems totally dangerous. This thing's yeah. rocking around. You're, you're right. You put, put the, the best workers and you put PN News, who was. In a situation where alone. you can't work? Yeah. I mean, you. Yeah. You're not putting them in a situation where you can accentuate the positives yeah. and hide the negatives, yeah. as Paul Heyman would say. Right. Yeah. Um, there's a spot in here where Austin's dangling and uh, dangling. both feet are just like hanging off. Oh, okay. Like that, that dangling. <laughs> oh, okay. my God. Okay. Uh, and then there's another spot where Terry Taylor is just wide open. Yeah. And then grabs the rail at the end just to stop himself. But. The thing is, if you've ever used a scaffold like this, you know those bars move. Right. So you could get to painting somewhere closer or whatever. Right. So what if that thing wasn't latched? He's gone. Right. Like dead. Yeah, exactly. Um, I found it interesting to watch this, too, because a lot of times people sleep on him. But there is a huge Bobby chant during this match. Bobby Eaton was over in 91. Maybe not to the level that he should have main evented a, uh, you know, a, a title shot at the Clash of the Champions, but that's a big deal for Bobby Eaton to have a singles chant like that after years of being a heel, and he's not necessarily a great promo, and that's always been something that gets the fans behind you. They just had a lot of respect for him as a worker, and I found it interesting. Um, I do, you know, we got to talk about the thing, though, because the scaffold itself is a little different from the ones in the past. Normally, it was all just steel, and this year, um, they replaced the steel top with wood, and one of the announcers makes the observation, uh, not steel, which would lacerate the back. This is wood, so it doesn't have the traction, but it's better for the skin. <laughs> Did I say that? Yes. <laughs> better, wow. for better for the skin. <laughs> like you're selling fucking lotion. <laughs> it's better for I was, the skin. I was probably looking at Lady Blossom when I said the word skin. <laughs> Uh, God almighty, you bring up this shit. Who, who made this fucking thing? And tell me it's Klondike Bill. Yeah, Klondike Bill made it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, He Klondike Bill built all that stuff. And uh, It's no wonder it's rickety. He had a full <laughs> plate with chewing them panties all day. <laughs> yeah, Klondike made well, Don't blame Klondike for that. But, you know, this uh, the opponent's flag type thing, we, oh. didn't, we didn't know that to the day of. I don't, as a matter of fact, I didn't know that until we were on the air. It gets better than that. Yeah. At some point in the match, Eaton just walks over with the flag. Yeah. He gets the flag, walks back to his side. Yeah. You fucks say nothing. Yeah. There's no bell. Yeah. There's no announcement. Yeah. The match is over. Yes. But they don't they don't make an announcement because they forgot the hairspray spot and Lady Blossom was going to throw some hairspray up. Yeah. And spray it and then let it go. Yeah. And uh then they announce the match. So yeah. the match has been over for minutes by that point. Right. But there's no announcement. There's no pop or anything. Cause no. 
The fans don't know because the goddamn announcers don't know. It is a true, tried and true WCW clusterfuck. There's no Ric Flair, and this is the way we start the show. How about that? Yeah. Um, this is the first WCW Great American Bash. That's the way you presented it. Was that the way you remember it? I found that interesting that even though WCW had technically been the name of the company for a little while, this was the first time you guys presented it as WCW's Great American Bash as opposed to the NWA. That had to be in reference to the NWA world title belt. Had to be. No no longer being in our possession. Uh, and then you make the announcement about WCW attempting to reinstate Ric Flair, but that uh, he turned him down, so the world title is vacant. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't, we can't talk about this without addressing the huge, we want flair chance. And there are a few signs and Meltzer reports that, uh, you guys were ready for that and you're prepared for it and expected it. And, uh, supposedly dusty didn't put a call to it saying, you know, just let the crowd have their fun. Right. Uh, but Meltzer freestyles that he thinks that they turn down the crowd audio when these we want flair chants get ridiculous. Do you remember that being a topic of conversation or what did you, cause you knew this was going to be something the fans were going to make a spectacle of. Right. And I don't think there was any way that we could get around quote unquote, turn down the sound. Okay. Uh, I, I just think that we couldn't get around it. You had to let it go. Don't remember dusty ever saying, let them have fun with it. But we just had to work through it. That We knew it was going to happen. What else could you do? I mean, I couldn't say, hey, they're still chanting Ric Flair, but that motherfucker's not here. Right. You know. Um, so you just let it go. Right. Um, Meltzer does report that even though they didn't confiscate We Want Flair signs, they did confiscate one anti-Dusty Road sign. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. That Dusty would have seen it in the truck and said, get that out of here? Yeah, Dusty didn't work in the truck. Well, why would somebody want to confiscate a dusty sign but leave the flare ones? Uh, that, to be honest, that may have been a Doug Dillinger move. They were just boys. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next up, we've got the Diamond Stud, which is Scott Hall. And when when has, you say they boys, you mean friends, buddies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you and I are now boys, right? Yeah. What do you think I meant? I don't know. Do you think I meant just, like? Just wanted to make sure. I mean, this is this is Alabama lingo. We're all learning here as we go. So I thought I'd get it. You know, get with it. I think everybody below 60 listening understood what I meant. Okay, go dogs. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Diamond Dallas Page bringing out part of his diamond exchange, which is the diamond stud. Um, <laughs> DDP has a bedazzled fanny pack, and he's wearing his typical 1991 DDP <laughs> swagged out shit. <laughs> uh, if you had to describe Diamond Dallas's Page's look in 1991, how would you do that? Uh, a guy who went to a lot of uh, rock concerts and just hung out with a band type thing. Uh, they start to promote uh, Diamond Studs Finisher as the Diamond Death Drop. Of course, uh-huh. this would later be Razor's Edge, and Outsider's right. Edge, and all that. Yeah, Pretty innovative move at the time. Yeah, Nobody else was doing it. How great does, did Scott Hall look in this match? He looks great every time he ever had a match. Tremendous. Uh, I, mean, I feel like he's like the, the the prototype for a wrestler. No, there's. I, I'm talking about the body. I mean, he just he looked the part, man. Now, were you more excited by him or Z-Man? Because Z-Man's in the same. Match. I led you into that. Thank you. You know, 
Uh, now, what was interesting to me about this is Seaman comes out with a bunch of ladies. Did yeah. you did you recognize any of those? Who I were did, those? Chicks? I did not recognize any of these girls. But are you trying to infer that I have a man crush on Tom Zink? Is that what you've been trying to infer the last couple of weeks? Well, I'm not inferring it. You're saying it. No, I'm not uh, saying it. Out loud I, you, for hundreds of thousands of people I, I can't say that a guy is a nice-looking man. You just said that about Eric Bischoff 20 okay. minutes ago. Right. It's so, fine. All right. But, a, you, but you want to take it one step further is what you want to do. How many diseases do you think he gave those women he came to the ring with that night? Uh, if he had any, they probably all got it. <laughs> there, was okay. a, there was a sign in the crowd that they shoot here that says the number one stud is z-man did you make that sign for that lady i did not okay but i would have not in my head but then when i take a look at scott hall i'm thinking you know scott hall is very attractive in a very exotic european sense how jealous were you of the woman that ddp called into the ring to pull off diamond studs pants that was pretty cool i wasn't jealous of him but Pretty cool move. Did you help him practice that move? Uh, no, I, no, I did not. I did not. Did you offer? I did not. Did not. Uh, who would Jim Barnett have liked more, Z-Man or Scott Hall? I mean, as a wrestler, you probably Z-Man, uh, probably, uh, probably, we're just asking. You I, know, I, I don't know. I don't know what Jim, Bar- I mean, I knew what Jim Barnett liked. What does I, he like? Well, he liked guys. Oh, oh. Okay. You didn't know that? I thought you meant like ice cream. No, okay. like guys. Like Jim Bardet was gay. Really? Yes. Okay. All right. That was well known in the business. Uh, so now me asking which guy he likes better may have come off a little weird, huh? Right. Yeah. Mm. Probably like both of them. Like, I mean, you know, Jim, it, it was well known. He didn't try to hide it. I'm just kidding. I knew that. Okay. I'm just busting balls. Yeah, I know you are. Um, I'm trying to make some sense of those. <laughs> bullshit talk we've gotten into here somehow two hundred thousand people are listening to this and they're not listening to hear us talk about ron simmons okay yeah uh they're doing a two i love ron simmons i did too but i mean we're we're gonna talk about he was a badass athlete and then what yeah somewhere weeks from now someone's gonna say ron he'll say yeah you say fans would rather hear about a gay guy than they would you and you'll go damn (laughs) (laughs) uh so Scott Hall here is doing the toothpick flip. He's doing a little bit of a um, a Rick Rude homage of sorts with uh, bringing a girl in and having her uh, take his, his pants off and all that deal. His warm-ups off. Yeah. Um, the match goes about seven minutes, and Z-Man goes after uh, DDP and hits him with a super kick. Paige tries to go over the top, can't, so he just falls through the second rope. Uh, and then Stud knees him from behind uh, and then hits a back suplex, a belly to back with a bridge, is what Jim Ross calls it. Uh, so Diamond Stud pins Z Man here and it gets a star in three quarters. It's worth mentioning Meltzer rated the scaffold match negative three and a half stars. Um, so we're off, we're off to a good start. And I would agree with Meltzer on that. So see, I'm not shitting on him every broadcast. I found it interesting because in this match, Scott Hall does a choke, what we now know as a choke slam. Uh, on Z-Man. Do you remember what you called it? It's the first uh, one I remember seeing, and you referred to it as a... Diamond choke motherfucking slam. I don't know. What did I say? Throat slam. Throat slam. Throat slam. Throat slam. Yeah. Pretty cool. Uh, so, Gary Michael Capetta announces next, soon to be appearing, 
uh, with the Grand Wizard, not of the KKK, <laughs> uh, is Oz. Thank God. Um, the Wizard was Kevin Sullivan. Yeah. Uh, he, we just talked a little bit about him earlier, that he's one of the great booking minds ever. Did, did, he, did he have the, the monkey with him? No, he'd already killed the monkey by this point. We'll talk about that in another show. <laughs> uh, the monkey. <laughs> We're off the fucking rails. Oh, God. He didn't kill the monkey the same way that Tom, Z- Tom Zink was. Tom Zink was killing the monkey right here. Now he won. <laughs> the monkey almost killed himself that first time. You know? Monkey suicide. Oh, God damn. Uh... <laughs> Tony is tickled. We'll be back in a minute. <laughs> I'm gonna fuck. Oh, I'm gonna fucking pass. Out. <laughs> Tony was a good man. Where were we? Where were we? Let's move on. Um, we're starting with uh, Oz coming to the ring. Oh God! And uh, here's something I bet you didn't know. Look to your right. Holy shit! Tell everybody what you see there. I see the uh, the great and powerful Oz's green, what you call it? The robe. The robe. Uh, I have shook your shit up today. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Nash gave me the Oz robe. Oh my god! How cool is that? How about that? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll tweet a picture out and post it on our official Twitter account. It's at WHW Monday. Uh, I might even get Tony drunk enough today that I can convince him to put it on. <laughs> And take a picture, and he'll send it to Deborah McMichael. It'll be a great day. <laughs> well, you, as soon as it's over, we might as well just get in the car and go down to Tuscaloosa and deliver it to herself. Yeah, have yeah. a stop and have a little dreamland for me and a little dreamland for you. <laughs> there won't be any ribs in here, so she may get one. This whole show's been one big fucking rib. It so has. Okay. Yeah, we're about two months into a rib. <laughs> uh, so Kevin Nash clearly hates this fucking Oz gimmick. Yeah. This is the last time we'll see it. He's going to be repackaged. Um, he had been a master blaster by this point. He had argued that this Oz character is fucking dumb because it's not a person. It's a geographic region. <laughs> <laughs> and back then, bags didn't have wheels on them like they do now. And he had a giant Tupperware thing. And he had to carry this fucking giant robe airport to airport all across Europe when you guys did a tour over there. So he's really relieved to be out of this gimmick. And this is one of the last appearances we'll see of it. Ron Simmons, who's starting to get a singles push here and is being presented as a very serious athlete, pins Oz in about eight minutes. Jim Ross says that both men could bench press around 500 pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Meltzer says in this match, neither one could get an ounce worth of heat. Really bad match. Uh, Simmons won with a flying shoulder block, and Meltzer says that's the end of Oz, although there was no word. Uh, although now there is word that Kevin Nash will be kept around and given a new role. Uh, he gave it a dud rating and the, the fans agreed because it got serious booze. Um, but it and, wasn't, wasn't the end of Oz and boring chance. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that was a wrap for Oz. No, the Oz went and wrestled on uh, Halloween havoc, 1991 and lost to Bill Kazmar. Well, look at you. So the original plan, according to Meltzer, was that Oz was going away. Yeah, yeah. So See, this is helpful. Sometimes I'll here's what we'll do moving forward. I'll watch the correct show. <laughs> you watch the incorrect show, yeah, okay. and then you can correct the Meltzer right. fallacies in between. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, they do a top 10 ranking next, and I've always been fascinated by the top 10s that WCW used to do. I, I find them interesting, especially here in hindsight. Um, let's go ahead and have fun with, with these top 10s and see if you can guess who you think some of these names on here might be. Uh, number 10, you want to guess? Tom Zink. Johnny B. Bad. Okay. Number nine, okay. Ron Simmons. Right. Number eight, Diamond Stud. So we've got some pretty good wrestlers here with Ron Simmons and then Scott Hall. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a spoiler. Number six is Arn Anderson. Huh. Guess who's between Arn Anderson, Scott Hall, and Ron Simmons? Who's right in between them? Tom Zink. Eligante. Okay. Uh, then... <laughs> Uh, the top five are pretty legit, though. We've got okay. Bobby Eaton, yeah. Stunning Steve Austin, Sting, Barry Windham, okay. and, of course, Lex Luger. Dustin wasn't in there? Uh, no. No. But they left him off. Okay. Maybe trying to placate people. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Richard Morton defeating Robert Gibson. They go 17 minutes in a match that Meltzer gave a star and a half. He thought it went too long. Uh, they started brawling on the ramp before the match even started. Uh, and at the four minute mark, Morton went after Gibson's bad knee, uh, and basically worked on it the rest of the way. And Robert did a great job selling the knee and Alexandra York distracts the ref as they both get in the ring. Morton takes her computer and comes off the top rope with it for the pin. Um, and that's it. So Richard gets the win a lot about this seems weird to me. First of all, Ricky working as a heel. Yeah. I'm so used to him being a baby face. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, his tights down the side. So even though he's supposed to be this, uh, classed up version and he's Richard, he's still wearing bandanas on his tights and down the leg. It spells Ricky R I C K E Y. I've never seen him put an E in his name ever. Have you? No. Well, his fucking pants say R I C K. He probably had them made, and someone misspelled them. He just and he said, "Fuck it, I'm wearing them." I had to wear them. Yeah. Um, the ref in this match was Bill Alfonso, who a lot of people remember from the old ECW stuff that he did with Sabu and Taz and Rob Van Dam. How was Bill Alfonso? Good guy. He worked out of Florida too. I he did. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Bill was a good guy. Uh, do you think that this match went too long at 17 minutes? No, I don't think there's any question. I think a lot of pay-per-view matches went too long. The, um, the whole angle comes about when Alexandria York, uh, invites Richard Morton to join her on June 12th. And Robert tries to talk him out of it. And then of course they fight. A lot of people didn't want to see the end of the rock and roll express, but I guess you could argue that, you know, as hot as they were in 85 and 86, it's probably time to look at doing something different by 91. Just freshen them up. I think so. Uh, they never really achieved the same success separate that they did together, though. And the finish, uh, you guys have a great line on commentary. You say, the computer was the difference. <laughs> it always is. It always is. Even here in 2017, yeah. it's the difference. Because it made the difference in me watching Great American Bash uh-huh. and you watching Halloween Havoc. Yeah, it's just a click away. Click it, difference. It was. Okay. Uh, next up, we've got a promo with the Young Pistols and Dustin. Uh, Dustin, at this point in his career, is still, at least in my estimation, trying to sound like his dad. It sounds like he's doing an impression of his dad in the promo. Hard not to, I would think. I would imagine. I can't imagine growing up with that as your dad yeah. and you're in the same company. and Talk about a bad spot. He's got a lot of pressure. Yeah. But he was a good worker. 
Absolutely. It was tremendous. Uh, we talked about it on our sister show, uh, something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard, where one of the ideas for WrestleMania nine was to have Dustin main event against Hulk Hogan. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Dustin as a heel, All which right. could have been fun. Yeah. Uh, of course that didn't happen. Huh. Uh, Dustin Rhodes and the Young Pistols, which we've talked about before, uh, they they have had a few different names: the Young Pistols, the Wild Eyed Southern Boys. Right. Uh, it's Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong, one of my favorite tag teams. Very underrated. They're tagging with Dustin here uh, against the Freebirds, which are Michael P. S. Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. But they've also got a man under a hood named Brad Street or Bad Street, uh, which is actually Brad Armstrong. Right. Uh, goddamn Candyman. Goddamn Candyman. Arachnaman. Lots of questions yeah. about when we'll have a Candyman t-shirt. Yeah. We need to work on that. Uh, it's an elimination tag match, and uh, Meltzer writes, these guys could have had a great match, but it just didn't work. It was really bad early, and it's hard to understand why, given the talent involved. Steve Armstrong was pinned after a double uh, DDT in 13 minutes and 49 seconds. Immediately after that, Michael Hayes uh, does a back body drop over Tracy Smothers, where Tracy goes over the top rope. That evens the sides because that's illegal in this version of WCW. So Hayes is disqualified. Then Smothers gets pinned by a double DDT about a minute later. And then Dustin pins Garvin with a clothesline right after that. This leaves Rhodes and uh, Brad. Dustin pins him with a bulldog after a couple of minutes. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, does a uh, drop kick on Big Daddy Dink when he tries to interfere. He gives this a star and a quarter. Uh, a couple of good things here we haven't really talked about a lot. Uh, Michael P.S. Hayes has on his tights Fantasia, and I know that that's what Dusty called him, but why is Michael Hayes referred to as Fantasia? We fans have never heard the full story there. I have, I have no answer for that. There was a big Gordy chant going here because he's obviously the missing member or one of the missing members of the Freebirds. Um, Hayes getting DQ'd for putting Tracy over the top. What do you think about that? That if somebody in this particular situation, Tracy's just charging him, um, Hayes leans down and then stands up. And when he does, the momentum takes Tracy over the top and then Hayes is disqualified. What do you think about that as a rule? Uh, uh, the over the top? Yeah. Yeah, I, I never did like it. I think it's dumb. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can you know, get away with almost anything. Why not get away with throwing them over the top? I feel like we've talked about it before. In fact, I know we have on the Great American Bash, but it's worth mentioning again. How fucking underrated is Jimmy Garvin? Tremendous. I, I think he's one of the forgotten guys who yeah. really knows how to put on a good match. Yeah, could talk, had everything. a good look. Everything. Could do everything. Um, you have it, a man crush on Jimmy Garvin? Well, he does have good hair. Right. Uh, any, what would Jim Barnett think about Jimmy Garvin's hair? He, he probably thought the hair was very nice, long, and flowing. Uh, who can argue that? Yeah. Any good Michael PSA stories? Yeah. You know, when uh, when Eric Bischoff uh, took over the company, he gave Michael PSA a hard time about thinking the Freebird gimmick was old, thinking it was you know, not early 90s, 80s gimmick, and he had to change it. I remember, because Michael and I did some uh, some shows together. I think some of the old uh, WCW main events, we did opens and closes. Right. And I remember Michael telling me, he said, I can be anything he wants me to be. If he doesn't like the Freebird gimmick, fine. Just tell me what you want me to be, 
and I could be it, and he could have. Right. But for some reason, Eric didn't like the old Freebird gimmick and gave him a hard time about it. But then again, we had no alternative to make him. I guess maybe Eric thought he was a free bird for life and you couldn't change it. Right. But Michael could do anything. Talented kid, man. Loved him. Uh, you got any good Humperdinck stories? I, uh, no, but I went to his, uh, went to, uh, I went to Michael Hayes' wedding. Really? Yeah. Sure did. Went to Michael Hayes' wedding, was on the Bruce cruise with Michael Hayes and his wife. Uh, Jimmy Garvin and Precious. One of the more misunderstood guys in the business. Really smart to the business. Really good guy. Fun to hang out with. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got the Yellow Dog, which is Brian Pillman under a hood, and he beats Johnny B. Bad by disqualification in six minutes. Uh, Meltzer says it's a very long six minutes, too. Uh, he writes that Bad does a great ring entrance, which is a line that will appear in at least one observer um, each week. He really is over with this ring entrance. Um, Meltzer contends he's nowhere near ready in the ring for what they're pushing him for. He says he does a great sunset flip off the top rope and clearly has potential, but he's years from being ready in the ring. Yellow dog hits a flying body press and has bad pinned when Teddy long interferes for the DQ after the match, bad sucker punch dog for the floor. He gives it three quarters of a star. Um, Anything stick out to you about Johnny B. Bad and Yellow Dog here? Uh, Johnny B. Bad had the look of Little Richard. Right. That's why they called him Johnny B. Bad. Good kid. Would do anything they wanted. Uh, and, I, and I think he's, he's gone on since the business, do some great understanding, some work. Uh, but again, he was pushed too soon. And we were at that point now where we were trying to push guys too soon. Next up, we see... Um Eric Bischoff overseeing that a note, a love note is being delivered from Jason Hervey to Missy Hyatt's locker room. He follows in and eventually realizes she's in the shower. They tease that you're going to see Missy in the shower. Of course, that doesn't happen. Yeah. And, uh, Meltzer writes, Bischoff looked like he was auditioning for the WWF with his 1960s used car salesman, insincere overacting. Wow. Uh, of course, Missy was in the shower when Bischoff came in, and Missy screamed and threw her shampoo at him. Uh-huh. Uh, what did you think of that segment in and of itself? Uh, I thought it was, I thought we oversold it seeing her in the shower, and we didn't show it, and it's one of those things where you promise a finish, you don't get them. It's a uh, dusty finish on the titties? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But uh, that line by Meltzer uh, about 1960 used car salesman in sincere overacting, just tells me that Bischoff never called Meltzer either. Uh, no, they're not friends today. I don't believe. Yeah. Uh, next up, we see Big Josh coming to the ring, and he's got a whole lot of blonde chicks with him. Roll tight on that. Wow. Uh, good luck for him. He pins uh, Black Blood, which is Billy Jack Haynes, yeah. in five minutes and thirty nine seconds. They say that uh, Black Blood is from a little town in France, yes. and the graphic says that he's with Kevin Sullivan, but he's out by himself. Right. Typical WCW. Yeah. Uh, nobody cared about either one of these two, but their work in the ring was solid and stiff, according to Meltzer. The Lumberjacks brawled as well. The finish saw Blood about to hit Josh with the axe when Dustin Rhodes grabbed Bourne's axe handle and hit Blood in the knee, and then Josh inside cradled him for the pin. That made four people that Dustin had single-handedly beaten on this show star in three quarters. So you can really see by the tone of Meltzer's writing that he feels like there's lots of nepotism at play yeah. for Dustin and Dusty. Well, he never liked Dusty at all. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can see him writing that 
And going back into it, I can see where people would have probably thought that as well. Uh, let me tell you something about Black Blood. I, I knew Billy Jack, uh, and he was an odd person. But I remember when we first had him on a show, and I think it was a worldwide show. I'm not sure, and I was doing the commentary. And they, he would come in, and Gary Capetta would say, from a little town in France, Black Blood. And he got his finish over, and then he looked into the camera and went, Black Blood. And I remember thinking, from a little town in France, he knows English awfully fucking well. Yeah, sounds like he's from Texas. Too. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, that was WCW. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Eligante yeah, pins the one-man gang at about six minutes next. Yeah. Um, one man gang comes to the ring with Kevin Sullivan. Both of these guys are wearing lots of heavy makeup, which I had never really remembered, uh, until watching this again, Eligante comes out with four little people, uh, that are referred to as midgets on the show. We did. Did I say midget? Yeah. I am so sorry. Well, that I said that word. I it was a different time. Okay. Uh, they're running around, uh, biting uh, gang in the butt and running between his legs they compare him to Gulliver, yeah, and uh, they'd start harassing Kevin Sullivan, which is kind of funny. I guess it'd have been better to say midgets instead of saying little salt-off motherfuckers, right? Probably. Okay. Uh, Meltzer writes, this was really bad, although Gang did take a slam off the top rope, which is pretty impressive considering his size. I'll put that in my notes, too. Yeah. He does a body slam off the top, which was outstanding. Yeah. They do a really horrible contrived finish where Sullivan hands uh, Gang a... Uh, an envelope of powder. Yeah. Uh, and normally Sullivan doesn't hand people envelopes of powder, at least on TV. Yeah. Um, and uh, Elegante kicks that into his face and then hits him with maybe the worst clothesline ever and then tries to splash him but misses, crawls over and covers him. Uh, and this gets okay. uh, a negative Move half on. a star. Uh, those, those, uh, those short people mm -hmm. were to make Kevin Sullivan look tall. Well, they made Eligante look like a giant. Yeah, and also help Kevin Sullivan. Yeah. You know, he is vertically challenged. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's Speaking a, of sought-off little motherfuckers. Roll tight on okay. that. Uh, next up, we get the package that shows the bill All right. for Nikita I'm a Kevin Sullivan Sting. fan. I love Kevin Sullivan. I, tell you, I don't want those slapdicks listening to this thing says, Shivani's ripping on Sullivan. His wife makes stuff out of uh, stuff she finds on the beach. Did really? you know that? Really? No, I uh, I talked to Kevin two weeks ago on the phone. He's great. Great guy. His wife ran that deal right there. Really? Yeah. Um, people, so just, people just give you shit, don't they? I'm a nice guy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything in here from Tom Zink? Just the uh, just the herpes. Okay. Go ahead. The, the package they do to show the build for Nikita Sting, I thought was fucking great. I think this is one of the bright spots of the show. Do you remember this match, the Russian chain match with yeah. Nikita and Sting? Yeah. Um, I think Nikita is, uh, I mean, I know he gets a lot of shit, and he's easy to beat up on and kind of poke fun at, but he has a phenomenal look. He feels like somebody the WWF would have loved. Um, and then, Why does Nikita get a lot of shit? Yeah. You know, he was, when he first came up, the super heel. Oh, sure. Yeah. Badass, legit son of a bitch. I know he wasn't well liked by some of the boys, and that may be some of the sure some of the problem, but I don't know why Nikita would get a bunch of shit. That's just from the guys. Yeah, okay. I got um 
Nikita wins the match. Uh, and uh, 11 minutes and 37 seconds. And this is one of those strap style matches where you've got to touch all four corners. Yeah. Uh, I actually liked this as a kid, but now as an adult, I think, you know, logically, this is kind of fucking dumb. I mean, they're not actively working to touch four corners the entire time. They're beating each other up. Well, while you've got a downed opponent, why wouldn't you just run and try to knock them out? Well, it sounds good, but you got to drag a big guy around. Not if the chain's so long that you don't have to. And in this case, the chain was so long, you didn't have to. Right. So, um, well, there was, I liked them too. I, I liked the Indian strap match. The one with, uh, uh, they did a match like this. I'm going to say it was, um, Starcade 90. I really enjoyed Stan Hansen and Lex Luger doing this. Right. I thought that we'll cover that yeah. another time. I'm sure. They had some good pops in this match for the low blows with the chain. Uh, and both guys touched the uh, first three corners, then brawl for a while, and then try to sprint to hit the fourth corner. Well, eventually that happens where Nikita is in front. So even though you could argue that uh, Sting was the one with the momentum, uh, technically Nikita touched it first, so he wins. And then Sting gives Nikita a low blow with the chain after the match. Uh, the match gets two and a quarter stars. I thought it was a really good match uh, for what it is. Um, this I did make a note here to ask you this: What prompted the color scheme and the change with the ring during this time? They went from, you know, what they'd been using for years to now they've got blue, black, and yellow ropes with blue and yellow turnbuckles. Uh, wh- what was the who prompts this color scheme change? That was a television thing, I think, and also they wanted to have their own logos and own colors identifying with the uh, the event. The color scheme was different for uh, Halloween Havoc. Sure. Yeah. Um, next up, we've got Lex Luger and Barry Windham. And uh, I found this hysterical because Barry Windham comes out first. And this haircut doesn't look like Barry Windham to me. But you know we're in WCW when they have a fancy graphic for him. And I'm thinking, hey, look at the production here. And then I realize Windham is W-I-N-D-A-M. Yeah. There's no H. Welcome to World Championship Wrestling, motherfuckers. Uh, who's responsible for a spell check? This seems like a, a theme because there was a Great American Bat, not not a Great American, a clash in New Orleans in 89 where Steamboat's wrestling Flair at the Superdome and you guys have Pyro for Ric Flair and it says R-I-C-K in the Pyro. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know who's in charge of, I don't even know who charge, was in charge of graphics, but I know the guys in, in the truck were Craig Leathers and Keith Mitchell. Did you notice the misspelling when they popped up? I did not. Okay. If I did, I... Of course you know sold it. I mean, yeah, can't, right. can't comment. I said, look at that. Those stupid son of a bitches misspelled Mary Wyndham. So look- we are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> They're building the, uh, the package here uh, with, you know, kind of explaining who these guys are. And they show the big gold belt in the package, which I found... Hilarious. Yes. Like, why would you draw attention to something that's not fucking there? The same reason you would misspell Wyndham. I guess. Uh, the the match is delayed a little bit, or it's written in the Observer that it is, because, and I thought this was fun, because I noticed, but I didn't know that that caused a delay. There's a spot where the lights are down, and then they turn the lights on to where they're kind of shining it to where they highlight the cage being lowered down from the ceiling. And then they shoot pyro off of the corners of the cage. 
but the cage is crooked as fuck. So it's not level. And supposedly they have trouble getting it down from the ceiling and that's what causes the delay. Yeah. They have JR and I fill time. This is the most WCW show. Yeah. Ever of WCW. There's a huge, um, we want chair flant. We want a flare chant that you guys are no selling. They've misspelled the name. They don't have the belt. The cage is coming down crooked. It's just awesome. Yeah. They show a belt on TV and, uh, whew, what the hell? This is not a leather by Dan special. The rumor and innuendo is that this is a loner from dusty roads from, uh, the Florida territory that he had made by Reggie parks that he just had at his house and they get a trophy plane to go over the top to cover the word Florida. Is that the way that went down? Is yeah. that the way you remember it? That's right. Uh, and of course they did commission, uh, a new belt that is probably most synonymous with Vader and Ron Simmons, but Lex Luger, Sting, Ric Flair, guys like that held it. Uh, and it's now owned by Dave Milliken, who used to make the belts for the WWE and UFC and uh, a host of others. And he's on Twitter at Dave Milliken. If you'd like to see that, he tweets out pictures of that belt all the time um, in its current state. Meltzer writes, uh, this is a tough situation in this match. Flair's the most over wrestler on the card, and this match featured mainly chance of we want Flair. Clearly, the people who were here were not here to enjoy this match. The heat was on Luger and Wyndham to rise to the occasion and make them forget about Flair, at least while their match was going on. But this match shouldn't have been in a cage, as it distracted from the match. It was a good match for what it was needed in this situation. It was nowhere close. All right, let me ask this. What was needed in that situation? What could we have done anything at all to remedy the flare situation? That's a great question. Yeah. We could have done nothing. Absolutely nothing. The the cage looks a little wonky to me too. Uh, it looks like it's just taped together in the corner. Yeah. Uh, it just kind of looks doomed. Yeah. Um, I did find it interesting that the most recent show we covered here on our program was Halloween Havoc 1990. And we made mention that that was the first major show without flair in the main event certainly the first pay-per-view he tagged with arn anderson against doom there the main event was sting and sid and now nine months later he's not even here yeah um so when people started to think this is the beginning of the end for him there uh, they were right uh, we don't just get we were we want flair chance we also get nature boy chance uh, one of the cool things about the match, if you're trying to look for something positive, is there were lots of fun overhead camera angles. I don't know who would have been responsible for that, but uh, it, it is an angle that we don't see very often, so that was kind of cool. Uh, I've always been curious, why these guys now? And I realize some of this is just, well, we didn't fucking have anybody and we needed somebody. I get that in theory. But it feels like Wyndham being the guy here is about five years too late. I, I thought... I think most people think his 86, 87, 88 stuff is just about as good as it gets. And now we're five years removed from when he's having five-star matches with Ric Flair and he's got a world title shot. And I think most people think that Luger probably should have won it in 88. And so now we're three years later on it. So it feels at least to me like it's a little, you know, too late here. Uh, Luger could have won it three years prior at the great American bash also in Baltimore uh, Wyndham's last title shot was the Crockett cup in 87 also in Baltimore. But now that they're here, this just feels like not nearly as special Is that just because of the state of WCW or because they just tried to hang on to flair too long. Originally, I don't know if they tried to hang on to flair too long, but it feels uh, again, I go back to, uh, 
what was needed in this situation, that question that Meltzer brought up, mm-hmm. we had nothing. Yeah. This is what we had. I'm not trying to defend any booking here, but I'm telling you, it's what we had. Well, I mean, let's go back and who who could have who could have been in that match? Well, I mean, Sting, Stunning Steve, Sting and Nikita for the title, yeah, could have worked. Sting and Lex Luger for the title could have worked. Okay, but I could see how you would think. Well, those guys were super friends. We'd be yeah. hot shotting that. I yeah. mean, I get some of that. Yeah. But it feels like, shit, if the biggest guy just left, what's the next biggest thing we can do? Let's right. give it to him in a hurry. Yeah. Um, so Harley Race and uh, Curtis Hughes come down, but don't interfere because it's a fucking cage. So Race just counsels Luger and says, now is the time and motions for the pile driver. Well, Luger hits the pile driver and Wyndham takes it kind of interesting. He connects his hands behind Luger's knees. So he's essentially getting pile driven on his hands. Right. Um, that's because he probably didn't trust Luger to not fucking murder him. Right. Exactly. Um, well, anyway, really process this since they're in a cage, Hughes and, and race aren't interfering in the match, but technically Luger's turning heel here. And technically I guess Barry Windham is a baby face now technically uh it's pretty anticlimactic the crowd does go wild for the win so they're cheering a heel winning the world title here i guess but they too don't know what the fuck is going on um welcome to the show everybody three stars is what Meltzer gives it um you were as pleased as you could be with the main event i take it yeah i mean what can you do what can you do Next up, we've got Missy Hyatt, who's chopped off her long blonde hair. And now she has shorter black hair. And she's tagging with Rick Steiner because Scott Steiner's not here. And they're going to take on Arn Anderson and Polly Dangerously in a cage match. According to Meltzer, what happened here is the Maryland State Athletic Commission has a rule prohibiting a man versus woman having a confrontation. Somebody made a huge mistake if that's the case. If the commission wasn't going to allow it, it had no business being advertised as such. If the company knew, well, we already know this is a dishonest company. If the company didn't know, then the commission is at fault, considering the match had been advertised on television for weeks. How do you remember that going about? Uh, I, I remember us, like, at the last moment we found out that the Maryland State Athletic Commission did not allow that. Uh, we probably found out about the same time we found out about the uh, the flag on the scaffold. Are we a dishonest company? Were we a dishonest company? Well, do you That's think, what was written. Do you think you are? I think we were more of a fucked up company than a dishonest company. Disorganized. Disorganized. Yeah. Yeah. Then di- I don't think dishonest is the right word. Well, I think he just means that you guys were constantly advertising people on house shows that weren't ever. Right. Either. Right. Exactly. But you think that's not in an, in a effort to dupe someone so much as it is just didn't know what the fuck you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's a company not not run well. Uh, the hardliners, which are Dick Murdoch and Dick Slater, come down and kidnap Missy. Mm. And as they're carrying her pack, uh, I find this kind of funny. Uh, a fan takes a swing at Murdoch. He turns around and swings harder than a son of a bitch yeah. at the fan right on camera. Yeah. Um, well, that says something, doesn't it? How great is Arn Anderson? Wonderful. 
he's phenomenal in this match. Uh, if you have not seen uh, some classic Arn Anderson stuff, you're cheating yourself. Maybe one of the most underrated guys ever. Uh, in the ring, Rick lays out Arn with a clothesline and then pins Paulie after a clothesline. It goes two minutes and eight seconds. So this is not your main event, or maybe it is. It's the last match on the card. It was a mixed tag in a cage uh, that goes two minutes. It's a dud. Yeah. So this is how you end what was once the trademark show for the NWA and Jim Crockett Promotions, Great American Bash. And now it ends when Rick Steiner gives Polly a clothesline in a cage. And they do a, a tremendous, they spend a tremendous amount of money on pyro at the end. Uh, for what reason and what they're celebrating, I'm not exactly sure. We probably could have saved some of that money on pyro. And, and paid Rick Flair. Played Rick Flair. I was uh, never a big fan of pyro. I thought it was over. It's a waste of time. Waste of time, waste of money. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Meltzer writes, I don't really know what else can be said. I'm not sure it was the worst pay-per-view show in company history, although for quality of matches, it surely was. They've gone way too far in the wrong direction. To WCW's credit, they knew and were worried about a protest scene because of all the unhappiness regarding how the Flair situation was handled. Nevertheless, they didn't try to confiscate banners going into the building. Uh, although it did seem the We Want Flair chant would get going, the audio man would turn the audio down. Uh, the chant occurred throughout the show, but was never acknowledged on the broadcast. Uh, and as we said earlier, a lot of people just assume this is going to be a wrestling angle and that Flair was going to do a run-in. Yeah. Well, that doesn't happen. Uh, and, you know, we all know what happens here. Uh, there's speculation that Flair is going to debut at SummerSlam at Madison Square Garden. That doesn't happen, but his belt is on TV before there. Flair comes in as the real world's champion. Uh, and as we said earlier, uh, Meltzer reports that WCW's new title belt is going to be a $17,000 belt. Uh, Flair, of course, had over $28,000 invested in his belt, uh, which they suggest is probably worth around $40,000. Um, and there's a book about the big gold belt that's available on Amazon that was written by a great friend of the show, Dick Bourne. Uh, you can see more about that over at midatlanticgateway.com. And they've got a seven-part series with Tony Schiavone. Uh, the pay-per-view we're covering today, though, Great American Bash 1991, did a 1.0 buy rate with 145,000 buys. And I think if they knew what they were signing up for ahead of time, it'd probably be a lot less than that. Yeah, and uh, there's nothing you could do about it by then. Yeah. I mean, we, we got I, their money. Fuck them. Yeah, well, I don't want to say that, but I'm saying that we. I'm not defending anything that Jim Hurd did in his contract negotiation with Flair or what Turner Broadcasting did. But I'm saying that it's, it's again, it's armchair quarterbacking at that time in the short span that we had to put things together. I think that's all we could do. Yeah. That was it. Maybe give them better finishes, but I'm not so sure because I, I have a feeling that there was a lot of guys on the card that night that thought this is the end of the company, so what the fuck? Yeah. So I'm, I wouldn't surprise me at all if that didn't hurt the work rate as well that night. Well, this is the end of the show. So what the fuck? Uh, there's no poll this week because on WrestleMania Monday, we're doing a Q&A show. We've invited you to go ahead and tweet us using hashtag what happened when and respond to our tweets. And next week's episode, we're going to go ahead and have in the can for you by the time Tony and I make our way to Orlando. 
And the only way to do that this week is to uh, call an audible. So we wanted to involve you, give you a chance to get involved. So if you tweeted us, we probably answered it. And that's what we're going to do next week right here on What Happened When Monday. Uh, if you'd like to be interactive with us on Twitter, I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. He is at Tony Schiavone 24. And of course, our show account where you can see that picture of Tony in an odd robe <laughs> is at WHW Monday. Uh, and as I look at my clock here, Tony, I feel like it's about that time. It is about that time, Conrad. And let me say that here at the Baltimore Arena, there's a lot of signs that say, We want Conrad. We want, and I hear the chants of We want Conrad. And here he comes down. He's got Missy Hyatt with him, and he's going to the ring. It's a stare down between Conrad and Holy Dangerously. But all of a sudden, in from the side, here comes Ric Flair. He is back. Flair is back. He's got a chair. He raises the chair up. Oh, we are desperately out of time. See you next week on WHW. What happened Monday? The rule of NLW Radio never stops.